Disclaimer dude. Disclaimer dude. Disclaimer dude. Disclaimer dude. Disclaimer dude. Here we go. Hi, I'm Steve Sensenig. And I'm Rayburn Johnson. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box is a community of people who are learning how to live beyond the limitations of institutional religion. We are searching out a message that is truly good news for everyone. Through discussions, interviews, group casts, and online interactions, we endeavor to foster a safe place to discuss our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid of any question. So... Grab a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join in the community that is Beyond the Box. Ray, our gathering in Nashville, we've been uh, releasing some different episodes from that time together. Uh, we had some really unique experiences there, and uh, one is this episode that we're about to listen to, which was a really fun discussion, very lively discussion, with Jim Palmer in a pavilion at a state park. Well, and I tell you what, Steve, to set the stage for our listeners, that this was absolutely one of my favorite parts of the gathering. Not only, I mean, it was... It was awesome to have Jim there with us and to be able to yeah. to share in community great conversation regarding our, our spiritual walks. But what was so cool to me was just the ambience of the park. To be outdoors, yeah. it was a chilly day. We had a, a fire yeah. going in the pavilion with us. Um, Jim was mm-hmm. sitting on a picnic table with all of us sitting around <laughs> at other picnic tables and people were walking back and forth and getting food and grazing and... You know, it, it it was just it was just an awesome time. Thoroughly, thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. I think you're gonna love this one. Yeah, the the uh, the ambiance is definitely different in this episode. You're gonna hear some diesel pickup trucks going by and airplanes <laughs> going over and leaves crackling and fire crackling and uh, people munching. But uh, I think it's it's just a great discussion. Jim really uh, touched on a lot of things that uh, resonated with me that day. Um, as he talked to shared his story and also, uh, just discussed and, and batted around some questions with, with all of us about various aspects of, of his faith and, and our faith. And, um, we might as well just kick right into it, right? Let's do it. So everybody, if we can kind of set in where we're going to be, wherever that's going to be. Everybody settle in. Feel free to get up and get the machine too and all that kind of stuff. Give me your attention just for a moment. Um, if you want to get up, go to the bathroom, get food, you know, it's a come as you are party. I'll leave when you need to, pee, whatever party. So uh, feel free to just move around as you need to. This is what we're calling the, the Ask Me Anything session with Jim Palmer. And I just want to kind of start with a little introduction of Jim from my perspective. Um, when I left the institutional church probably close to 10 years ago now, um, one of the first books I read was a book called Wide Open Spaces, which was Jim's second book. 
And it was the first book that I felt like gave me permission to put down the Bible for a while, as heretical and crazy as that sounds. And I remember reading this guy who used to be a pastor at Willow Creek and had had a lot of the same experiences I had on a larger scale than I had. Um, I remember reading that book and just going, oh my gosh, because Stephen and I were having these conversations about being outside the institution, and I remember just going, oh my goodness, there's a person out there with whom I can identify who, um, who is having these same thoughts on a larger scale. Like, this is not just me and Steve and a handful of other people. There's a lot of people having these thoughts. So Wide Open Spaces led me to go back and read Divine Nobodies, which was another one of those experiences where you go, oh my gosh, because we're in the midst of deconstructing the whole hierarchical system within the church. And, and uh, I remember reading that book where Jim talks about everybody being a conduit of the presence of God and everyone being someone that can, that can help you on your spiritual journey, no matter if they're a mechanic or a waitress or whatever. And then Jim got in big fat trouble with this book called Being Jesus in Nashville and got himself cut out of the Christian market. And uh, I remember being right in the middle of the Christian retail industry when all that went down. And uh, Jim started self-publishing. And since then, he's done two fantastic books, uh, Being Jesus in Nashville and also Notes from Over the Edge. And you got a new book coming out, end of the year. Not inner ear anarchy, as we were talking about. <laughs> inner anarchy, so be watching for that one. But Jim, when we were talking about what to do today, we talked about should we, um, you know, should we let Jim do a presentation and then have question and answer time and comment time? But instead, Jim wrote back and he said, you know what, I think we really need to do just a round table, ask me anything, just open his heart and open his life, and if there's questions you have, um, that you felt like you wanted to talk to Jim about, that you can put them out there. That nothing's off limits. I think I'm right in saying that. <laughs> nothing's off limits. Um, just to ask me anything time. And if you wouldn't mind, Jim, I would love it if you would just start with just maybe a little bit about where your spiritual journey has gone in the last couple of years since, well, it's been more than a couple of years, but since leaving the institution, your deconstruction process and kind of where you're at today, which might give some of those who haven't read your material or aren't familiar with you kind of a context so that we can get the party rolling. So if you want to start, that would be awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate coming out about 30 minutes away from here. I live down in Hermitage. And uh, so, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, southwest Virginia, Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, you know, grew up in a pretty traumatic uh, family, childhood, home situation. My mom was an alcoholic. She suffered from mental illness. My father left our family when I was one years old. And um, I, you know, suffered abuse growing up. And so I kind of emerged into adulthood pretty confused and messed up in life. And I left home to go to college. I went to East Tennessee State University. And while I was there, I just happened to run into, in a student center, a gentleman who was the campus director of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is, you know, a, a parachurch ministry. And he became real involved in my life. He's kind of a father figure for me in some ways. And so that kind of began the next, what, 20 years of my sort of odyssey through evangelicalism. It started... You know, uh, at East Tennessee State with Campus, Campus Crusade for Christ, I traveled overseas. 
when I was finished college, I went up to Chicago, went to a seminary at Trinity Divinity School. While I was in Chicago, I discovered Willow Creek Church, went on staff at Willow Creek, was there for a few years, left Willow Creek, came down to Nashville and started a non-denominational Willow Creek kind of church. So that's what uh, you know got me got me to uh, Nashville. And Divine Nobodies was the part of my journey when I began noticing that uh, I began to see that a lot of the uh, the Christian beliefs that I had held in a lot of my Christian practices, I really began to question. Part of this was started, uh, you know, I remember a young gal called me one day when I was the pastor of the, of the, of the church that I had started, and it was a growing church, it was a successful church, and a gal had called me and said, can we meet for coffee somewhere? I, we really need to talk. And so I met her. And while we were meeting, she, you know, pushed up her shirt and she pulled up her skirt and she was covered in bruises. And she was getting beaten in her marriage. And the person who was beating her was the drummer in our worship band. And so this was sort of the beginning of my really starting to question. Okay, we seem to have all the right information about God. You know, I was a seminary graduate. I had all the answers. I uh, was the resident Bible expert. I taught, you know, the truth about God and from the Bible. And yet, it didn't really seem like that it was transforming people's lives internally. Uh, year after year, a lot of the same problems persisted. A lot of the relationship turmoil. A lot of people's hurts and pains and suffering and heartache, including my own. So... Uh, that was sort of an, uh, a moment when I thought, okay, something's not right. You know, just something's off and I need to figure out what that is. And so Divine Nobodies was my beginning to uh, come to grips with things that I'd learned about God that, uh, that I began to question. Um, and I left organized church ministry because I knew that I was going, for me, I needed to find some answers um, on, on why this was so. For myself, you know, uh, my own life. And so I left organized church ministry and began to chart this other path, you know, trying to figure it out. What of all this stuff I've been taught, I learned in seminary, I've been teaching people for all these years, what of this is real? And what it what is it? And each of the chapters in Divine Nobodies revolves around a person that that I ran across in life that challenged what I thought I understood about God. So each chapter kind of revolves around a person, um, a car mechanic, a Waffle House waitress, a tattoo artist, a hip hop musician. These are all people that I would have never expected would have been the ones that would have really been teaching me what it means to know God. And yet that's what was happening as I was building relationships and getting to know people outside of uh, my Christian subculture. So Wide Open Spaces, so, so I wrote that book and I got tremendous response. You know, it turns out I'm not the only one that other people who are in organized religion or institutional church or grew up Christian 
uh, were silently doubting some of what their experience was, some of the beliefs they held. Um, and they, they would write me emails and say, Jim, you know, I could have written this book. This is exactly what I feel. I've had those questions and doubts and experiences um, in, as a Christian. And so <clears throat> what I realized is that, so including pastors who wrote me and said, okay, I'm with you on a lot of the things you're saying, but now I'm stuck because if I was to start talking about these things to my congregation, I'd be fired, mm -hmm. I'd be let go. You know, so how, how can I move forward in this, in this journey? And I noticed that people were getting stuck in the anti-religion part of it. You know, like, I think, of course, there's a legitimate phase that people go through in the religious detox period if you're shedding religion when you're hurt, you're damaged, you're frustrated, you're angry. That's just part of it. Um, but I started noticing that sometimes people weren't getting past that. And so they were developing a new identity, and the identity was anti-religion. But it never really... So I thought, okay, if it's, it's easy to say it's not this, okay, but what is it then? What is the alternative? So I wrote Wide Open Spaces is just, and all these books are telling my story. It's not really me laying down some kind of like law about this is what it is or should be. It was just describing what was happening with me. So Wide Open Spaces was describing the part of the journey where I began to experiment with what it might mean to know God beyond the mindsets, the mentalities, the practices that I at least had bought into and through um, my organized religious faith. And so I deconstructed most of my theology, Christian theology away by now. Most of the traditional beliefs that I held, you know, theologically, I deconstructed. You know, I kind of taken them all apart, spread them on the table, and there wasn't much I picked back up. But the piece that wouldn't go away was Jesus. You know, like that was the part I had a difficult time deconstructing away Jesus because I, you know, I was sufficiently convinced that there was a Jesus. And, um, and I even met a lot of people outside of organized religion who were not interested in Christianity, but who were fascinated with Jesus, the spiritual message of Jesus, what Jesus represented his life, and so on. And so um, I was stuck with, okay, so where does Jesus fit now? I mean, up until that point, Jesus was significant because I had created a whole theological system to put Jesus in the center. Once I deconstructed that theological system, well, then where, what do I do with Jesus now? Where does Jesus fit? So I decided to spend, so I basically said, okay, I'm, I'm going to take the next year and I'm just going to devote myself to trying to answer the Jesus question for myself. I tried to talk about it in wide open spaces, but I didn't feel like I, I was happy with the, the complete explanation there. You know, it's kind of like what um, Western Christianity really took a hold of that question, what would Jesus do? And it seems like what I've mainly told people for a whole lot of years is that, that we need to think about what Jesus would do, but oh, by the way, you can't do it because Jesus was God and you're not. So like 
okay, I, there seemed to be a bit of a problem there. Why am I telling people that they need to do what Jesus did and then claiming that Jesus is something different altogether, which puts him in a whole separate category that, that makes him capable, but us not right. capable of really doing what he did. So uh, at this point, I've read my two first books with Thomas Nelson and then um, Zondervan, uh, signed me to a, a two-book contract to write Being Jesus in Nashville in the next book. And we all agreed on the front end that because it was one of those one-year, we'll figure it out as it go, goes books, that you know no one really exactly knew how it was all going to turn out. But that was sort of the appeal of the book in a way. You know, It's like I was writing it as I was going along. So I went into that year, and it was actually longer than a year because, you know, I lost both my parents. I had two near-death experiences. I had two experiences where neither one of them I should have survived. Um, at that point, I was doing a lot of marathon running. I was doing a trail marathon in Chattanooga. Um, and at the end of the marathon, um, I had heat stroke. And I was I was in, uh, God was driving me and, and I went unconscious in his car and he pulled over and said, where's the closest hospital? Uh, at a fast food restaurant, and they said you need to take it back to Chattanooga, and that was about 20 minutes away. And um, so he he was concerned about the length of time on that drive, and so he asked somebody else, and they said, oh, well, there's actually a real clinic just down the road. And they took me to that clinic, and, you know, the ER doctor who saw me said, you had 10 minutes. If you had gone back to Chattanooga, you wouldn't have lived. But I, I survived, you know, that. And then two weeks later, two weeks after that, I'm driving down 40 out here between the airport and Hermitage. And, um, you know, I look in my rearview mirror and, uh, you know, it's late. It was, um, I was actually had gone to Kinko's to print some copies of the thing that I was working on. I was coming back home. I look at my rearview mirror and there was a car coming and I just kind of notice it, you know, behind me. And then when I look up again, I notice, well, this guy's really flying. And then by the time I looked up again, he just creamed right into me. So it, uh, um, it rolled my car down the interstate and down an embankment, and, you know, and I landed upside down. And there was another car that got hit, in which there was a fatality. And, you know, it was just a miracle that I was eventually pulled out of the car alive. You know, uh, the car next to mine, it caught on fire, gone up in flames, and, you know, my car was dripping gasoline, all kinds of stuff. And I was prepared to die, you know, in that car. I was convinced I was not going to live. And uh, they smashed out the windows and, and pulled me out, and I survived. And those, you know, um, <clears throat> and so those experiences were part of the, the journey for me to, in, in trying to sort through why Jesus was significant. And even part of it was coming together in my mind as I was laying um, in that car, you know, convinced that I was going to die. And so that was, was being Jesus in Nashville, find the, finding the courage to live your life, whoever and wherever you are. And part of the discovery in that book is that Jesus didn't want me to live his life, he wanted me to be, he wanted me to live my life. And that was beginning of me starting to see that, I, that there was a transition that I never really made. And sometimes I think that Christianity, at least certain pockets of it never made, which is that we got really attached to Jesus, the person. You know, Jesus, 
the human person who walked the earth. We got really attached and, and you know, fascinated with him, the person, but maybe we didn't really make the transition to what Jesus spoke so much about in terms of the spirit. You know, so even Jesus, you know, would say, you know, I'm going to die and his disciples will be distraught. So, well, what will we do? And Jesus would say, well, this has to happen. You know, I have to go away. Otherwise, what happens is you stay attached to me as a person. You build a religion around me, a person, and you never get on with what my teaching has been, which is following the spirit. And in some ways, I think that's what Christianity actually did, is built a religion around Jesus, the person. But anyway... Um, Zonervan didn't like that answer <laughs> because the, I, I was either making Jesus too human-like or I was making me too God-like but either way it was um, messing around with the one doctrine you can't mess around with mm-hmm. in Christianity which is the divinity of Christ so I mean I don't actually come out and say it, but I, I, I did enough for Zonervan to, you know, I mean, I got the letter about how the, what I had written was a violation of Orthodox biblical Christianity, and they, they didn't publish the book, and they canceled my book contract for, you know, for both books. So that was Being Jesus in Nashville, and then... Over time, you know, I've gotten more interested in things. You know, the further I've gotten away from some of my religious past, what I was once really interested in, I've become less interested in and become now interested in some new things. You know, um, I was once really interested in hell. You know, I mean, that's a big one if, you know, you've been raised in evangelical Christianity. It's heaven and hell. And, and as a side, I think that you know, Christianity, my Christianity that I was involved in, I I did start noticing a sort of pattern, which is that all the important things are really externalized. You know, this is about Jesus the person. Heaven is a location up above. Hell is a location somewhere down below. You know, um, the uh, we get our authority from the Bible, which is a book that's outside our. I mean, like I started noticing that as much as Jesus seemed to be emphasizing the Spirit within us, a lot of my Christianity was focused on something that was external and outside of me. Um, so I became less interested in hell and became really interested in suffering. You know, why do people? Why is there suffering? Why do people suffer? Why have we not? been able to really answer this question. You know, uh, I have a really good friend who's a Mahayana Buddhist, and, you know, Buddhism really takes up the issue of suffering. You know, uh, I kind of think that what Jesus was primarily addressing and what the Buddha was addressing were, were two different things. I don't necessarily think that, the, the, you know, that... There's many ways that I see similarities between what the Buddha taught and and Jesus, or at least what I understand that Jesus taught, but I do think they kind of were dealing with two separate issues. Um, that doesn't mean that the Buddha never said anything about separation or that Jesus never said anything about suffering, but I think they focused on 
some different things. And, and of course they were. They were from, you know, in two totally different contexts with two totally different set of circumstances. You know, um, it seems clear that by, you know, the, the, and Jesus said himself that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. You know, I mean, that's why he said he came. He wasn't even particularly concerned with the Gentiles. They they tend to be the people he wanted to hang out in his own time with in, in his own you know with his own free time, you know, because they perhaps didn't have some of the religious obstacles that the folks of his religious tradition had, you know. Uh, but it, but Jesus said himself that that I came for the lost sheep of Israel. I came to straighten out where. My religious tradition has missed something. Um, and <clears throat> so for me, the big, I, I really started focusing on why, okay, we, you know, well, how do we deal with suffering? You know, um, and over the years, a lot of people have said to me, you know, that one of the criticisms of Christianity compared to like Buddhism, particularly, is that. It's not practical. You hear a lot of people say that, you know, uh, Christianity is not very practical. I mean, you know, like the, we have all this theology and all these doctrines and all this stuff, and you know, maybe the way we teach or something just comes across as, as, um, you know, impractical. And Buddhism, which most people wouldn't even consider a religion, really more of a philosophy, uh, perhaps, um, you know, uh, is very practical in ways that people have not found in Christianity, and particularly on this whole subject of dealing with the nature of reality and the issue of suffering. So, Notes from Over the Edge, Unmasking the Truth to End Your Suffering, was the the book, the, you know, the, the fourth book after Being Jesus in Nashville, which was my exploring the topic of addressing human suffering in light of what I was beginning to learn and discover for myself in my own spiritual journey. Um, and then the book I'm writing out right now is entitled Inner Anarchy. And, uh, you know, anarchy is the absence of a ruling class. You know, we've had moments in, you know, I mean, there's, in the, in the political realm, you know, there's, Republicans, there's Democrats, there's Libertarians, I know all kinds of other independents, and then once you move past the Libertarians and keep on going, eventually you run into anarchism, which is essentially the absence of government and a ruling class entirely. And, uh, I mean, if you study anarchism, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, there, there have been some stretches in human history, the Spanish Revolution was one, probably the longest period of time where, where the, the philosophy of anarchism worked pretty well. It functioned pretty well. But putting all that aside, it really became a metaphor um, that connected with me as it relates to inner anarchy, which is, you know, political anarchy would be dethroning the ruling class um, and the absence of. Inner anarchy would be dethroning the mindsets, the mentalities, the, I, the ideologies that rule us from within. So the, the I, you know, what I began to see is that I have no enemies, really. There are, there's, there's nobody out there that I can point to that's my enemy. 
It's really not any person or people. What's happening is that there are certain attitudes and views and mentalities and ideologies that are in us, that are ruling us from within. And I very much see Jesus as an inner anarchist. You know, um, I think that he even spoke of this in parables, you know, like even, uh, I think there's a way that we understand, you know, there's a lot of different ways to understand Jesus, of course, you know, but uh, um, even when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and how it's going to be torn down stone by stone till there, you know, there's not one stone left standing. Um, and I really see that speaking to the issue of the, the need to topple, dethrone those mentalities, mindsets, and ideologies that right now are ruling and holding the world in captivity, but it's because they're ruling inside of us. Um, and then the way, what would be the alternative to that? Because, so what happened is that in the whole shedding religion thing, you know, people go all kinds of places, you know, they maybe, they start whatever Christian, evangelical, well, whatever it is, and then some people um, get to a point where they deconstruct their theology and they, you know, they can become atheists. Okay, I don't, I don't believe in any of it, you know, and, um, and, and I have a lot in common with atheists, and I agree with the atheists who, who no longer can in good conscience hold a belief in the God of religion, you know, uh, or, you know, and, and, and some people, you know, like I did a post on Facebook, I can't remember, I asked a question, you know, and, and you know, someone was saying, well, you know, I, I no longer really hold a belief in Jesus, you know, I mean, Really, how do we know? You know, I no longer, I question the credibility of the Bible. Therefore, I question the validity of Jesus. Therefore, I'm just, you know, so people can go in every direction. I have become, so for me, I feel like I've, um, I needed to give Jesus another hearing or that I might have, not really understood or that I, you know, or I have a personal interest. There's something inside of me that's compelled by those things about Jesus that I feel like that I either missed or got wrong. Or I just haven't fleshed out enough for myself. Um, and so I started writing this religion free Bible and then stopped to write notes from over the edge. I mean, inner anarchy, but then I'm going to go back to the religion-free Bible, because I think what happens is, you know, I went to seminary, and what you learn in seminary is you're doing something called exegesis, which is that you're looking at the text, you're, you're looking at the context, you're applying the proper, you, you know, um, translation uh, principles and so on, and you're drawing out of the text what the meaning is, you know, I mean, that's the idea. But what, but... Is it that or is it the opposite, which is called eisegesis, which is what's really happening, or could, or at least this is the question, is you're really reading into the text what's there. You know, you, you've already got a certain set of parameters that you have accepted, and therefore you're going to read it into the words that are in Scripture. And it's like you can't not do it. You can't, 
turn that filter off, it's like it's automatic. You're always going to read it in a certain way. You know, uh, now, I mean, you could find people, and there are those who write about Jesus who had no real experience in, in, who don't necessarily have the same experience in organized religion. There's a lot of people who write, you know, about Jesus in a lot of different ways other than coming that route. You know, even what's her name who died? Is it Sylvia Brown? Yeah. You know, although I think she was Catholic, if I'm not mistaken, or even Anne Rice wrote a book about Jesus, you know, and so there's a lot of different ways to, to kind of come at it. But the, the idea with the religion free Bible is what it would it look like if, what if you changed filters? I mean, at least maybe have the opportunity to see it differently, you know, and then maybe you can make a judgment for yourself, but like to, to switch the filter, um, the religious filter, so to speak, you know, uh, to, to maybe, okay, so that's, what would you like to talk about and all that? <laughs> First of all, that was a great introduction. Oh, I know. Uh, all right, see ya. I guess I'm going home now after I, after I talk for five hours. So let, let's just do this. Uh, we'll just kind of, Jim, if people just raise their hands and you want to call on people, just, you know, okay. that way. Yes. Okay, so we're shedding religion. We're shedding everything we thought we knew or things that we were told to believe <clears throat> and doesn't run true to, to our, our value system or our idea of what spirituality is. So you lose empathy. You even lose the body of Christ. You lose fellowship. And we're, we're being taught to think for ourselves we're being inspired to or being a light is being shed on the idea of thinking for ourselves and listening to that inner voice and trusting that inner voice. So all of a sudden you become an individual. So what come what happens to the body of Christ? How do we come together without it a uh, hundred years from now ending up being an organized religion once again? Because once you bring people together and they all have different ideas, if you want to get along, you have to have something set. So you all have something in common because commonality is what brings people together. We had Jesus, we had the fundamental ideologies, I guess, or rules. That's what brought us together, and we were common. So if we're all thinking differently, I'm thinking long term. What does that look like? What does fellowship look like? What does the body of Christ look like? What does I'm telling you? It's gonna. I think maybe I'm being pessimistic that it's somehow gonna become a group of people that. Don't believe in that, but it's a group. Don't believe in what we used to believe, but then again, it's a group. And then all of the whole, like, you know, Jesus says, I hate manipulation because they vote and they decide. And how do you exist with a body of people without what we knew before? How do we come together? How do we fellowship? How do we. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's a really. Because yeah. Yeah. we're supposed to be so individual. What happens to all that? Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a really good question. Because, you know, I think you're right that when I started realizing that, you know, when I ended Notes from Over the Edge, somewhere near the end, I think it's maybe at the very end, I don't know, somewhere near the end, um, what I said in it was um, forget about everything that you just read. Like, let it go. You know, like whatever was in this book that was useful, fine. Other than that, then let it go. 
you know, um, it was it was only meant to be a pointer to the truth. Once you got whatever you needed to get out of it, then ju just forget it, let it go. You know, um, in other words, I think one of the things that you're realizing is it's the tendency to create a new religion out of our latest discovery. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. You know, to. Like, What's the topic of our, what's going to bring us next time together? Yeah. You, then it becomes a you. Right. And this you is know, what. Me, my idea, or, you know, mm -hmm. what is that common thing that's going to bring us together if we're supposed to think? Right. And. Yeah, and I think that it sometimes it's our religious programming that kind of gets in the way. And by the way, I'm only, I use the word religious because I'm not, you know, I, it's a general term. Right, you know, like, and I, and maybe there's a better term to use. But I like faith beliefs. Faith beliefs is what I've okay changed for religion, you know, because we all have faith beliefs, right? right. Spirituality, spiritual journey. Yeah. So what I was partly maybe trying to get at is that the uh, does anybody in here know Abraham Maslow? Who's a psychologist? Huh? Hierarchy of needs. Abraham Maslow had the hierarchy. Maslow had the hierarchy of needs. He created this. What he discovered was that on the surface, it, it what we naturally notice about human beings is how we're all different. You know, we're different um, color, we're different ethnicity. We're you know, we we all have these external differences. We have different politics. We have different interests. We have different. I mean, everything is. That's the first thing you really notice is how everybody's different. And Maslow discovered that despite all those differences, the truth is that everybody is really the same. Every single human being, doesn't matter your race, your color, your religion, your politics, your personality, your music, what part of the world you're from, we're all the same. And he said, we're all the same because we all want and need the same things. Every human being. They created the triangle at the bottom was the survival needs, you know, we need food, we need water, um, we need security, shelter, and then it moves up that triangle to uh, more what might be called psychological or emotional needs. We need a sense of belonging, we need significance, we want to know, uh, uh, we want love, you know, and at the very top of the Maslow talked about self-actualization, where there's a need that human beings have or desire to realize their full potential as a person. And, and then actually later in his life, you know, people believe that he even developed one further, which had more of a spiritual component to it. Um, and uh, so the, the point being is that there, there is a basis for all of humankind to be connected in meaningful ways. You know, that's first and foremost, because the things that all of us most desire and need as human beings, we, we all share. And that was uh, important to me in a way because, you know, I learned in my, my religious upbringing, you know, I really divided the world up, you know, and really saw people were separate, um, you know, held stereotypes and judged people based on what my Christian subculture taught me. And so over time, I began to see that really, you know, there's a way that I could push past what was on the what was in the external realm and really connect with people on the basis of what we really share in common which even goes further if you believe they were all created in the likeness of god so there's 
um, at the most fundamental underlying aspects of who we are, there is even a further connector or sense of oneness that's already present there. We don't have to do anything, it's just there. It all, it, you know, it, it already exists. And so, you know, so th there's, there's all kinds of ways that I was at the Ronald McDonald House and I was serving meals to families who have kids who are dying of cancer. And when I looked to the, went to the board and looked at all the people who had signed up, you know, and I could tell from all the names, you know, we probably represented, you know, there are Middle Easterners that were there serving. I, I know that I was at least working side by side um, with some folks who were Jewish, some people that, who were Muslim. You know, uh, and in that moment, that those differences weren't significant because we were both participating in in, in something that in, drew us together and connected us together in a, in a meaningful way. I didn't stop and say, "Well, are you a Muslim, or are you an atheist, or you know," um, and and then kind of somehow let that influence my experience. There was a oneness, a a, a human and spiritual reality that you know uh, drew us drew us together, and probably most of us here, I don't know the age of everybody here, and I didn't really experience it myself. I mean, I was kind of like, it was about, I mean, it was kind of um, ending really parts of it, but the 60s. Have anybody ever experienced the 60s? Um, okay. All right. <clears throat> that... Um, there, there's, there's some things about the 60s. If you study it, it's, it's interesting because most of us think about the 60s. A lot of us think about the 60s or, you know, people who now talk about it, you know, mention what kind of went wrong about it. You know, like I even had a Facebook where they tell me, well, yeah, my daughter told me she learned about 60s in school. It was just a bunch of hippies having sex and naked and, you know, taking dope and that's it, you know. Huh? Sounds like the 70s. So, but, but then there's some other people who, there's another view about what happened in the 60s, which is that there, there was a, something that happened that brought people together and there was not a leader. There was not really a, a an organizational component to it. Really, you know, um, there there was nobody in charge. But it was something that um, it, it, it was a a sort of spiritual reality that bubbled up from the bottom up and connected people together in very real and authentic ways. And there wasn't really anybody who was in charge, you know. Uh, and for those who experienced that part of it, and, you know, it was very, it was very real. It was very powerful. They've never experienced anything like it since then, you know. Um, but then it fractured, it divided up. Some of it became the Jesus movement and did exactly what you're describing. Is it's people started trying to get a hold of it, put structures around it, define it, turn it into a program, and then it was lost. You know, um, but it, but there was a time there when it appeared, felt like to a lot of people, that there was a, a, a spirit 
of the times that was was working and drawing people together in very authentic and meaningful ways that centered around some of the values of love and you know uh, music has always been a a, a very um, it seems to to be a way for a lot of people that that kind of triggers and promotes you know some some spiritual realities on a on a deeper level you know um and so you know <clears throat> all that to say is that we have i think some examples of of great movements and spiritual uh moments where we experience a, a sort of spiritual oneness that nobody was really in charge of and it kind of worked you know itself out in very meaningful ways for people without somebody trying to rush in and and you know create create a religion out of it when, when i here one of the things that i did is i after i left organized church ministry then i thought well okay i'm i'm going to do a a less organized church i thought maybe i could do that and so i i started this kind of like non-church church and then about like a year into it, I figured out it's the same thing. I was doing the same exact thing. You know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, like my friend Wanda at the Waffle House. She said, Jim, you know, look, you can sunny side them up. You can poach them. You can boil them. You can scramble them. At the end of the day, it's just eggs. So that was me. I finally got to the point where I realized when in this little church, this thing I was trying to do, that this was me trying to establish an organization. You know, it was an unorganization organization, but it was still an organization. It was still needing to have something I could point to and say, that's it. That's what Jim's doing. That's what our group is about. There was like something that I could point out that needed organization. When I realized that, I was like, okay, we, we're done. We need to stop. Because it's actually preventing what we were saying that we wanted to do. So we dissolved that and realized that, you know, uh, that for us, the, the, the church, well, at that point of the journey, church for us then became um, the social network, the relationships between people without structure, without a requirement of participation in, in some kind of organizational way. It just, it became a, a, a social network of people, you know, uh, and then people created religion out of that, right? Yeah. You know, like they wrote a book, you know, about one anothering, and then now people going out and teaching, you know, and yeah, so right. it's, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing I, one of the things that I know that, that, that I try to do that people can do is that once you become aware of something, it is a little easier to um, combat it. You know, it's kind of like, I remember for myself personally, when I got to the point in, you know, some of my personal journey where I realized, okay, I'm codependent. <laughs> now I figured it out. Now, you know, somebody gave me a book by Melody Beattie. I was reading, you know, that's Jim, that's Jim, that's Jim, that's Jim, that's Jim. Okay. Now I understand I'm codependent. Okay. I can, I can read it. I can hear about other people's experiences. Okay. Now that I know, you know, when I've kind of gotten educated about it and so on, it was, it was, you know, it armed me with something that made it a little bit easier to address. You know, so, you know, now that we all know, 
then we need to really, you know, be vigilant about not letting, you know, um, you know, the, this tendency to creep in where we want to build a religion um, around what the newest, latest, greatest, most progressive, enlightening thing is, you know, uh, and there's, you know, and we have good examples. I mean, contrary to what I think the Christian religion did, Jesus tried to do that. That's right. You know, don't do that. The Buddha said, don't do that. You know, um, you know, he said, look, if you see a Buddha on the street, kill him. Because the idea was, is that the idea that so, yeah, well, the idea was, metaphor, the idea was that there is no Buddha walking around. If, like, there is no person, the minute you make a person, the Buddha, you ascribe to a person or organization, movement, or whatever, you know, then it's running contrary to to what the truth is about, you know, all of us together. You know, um Huh? He raised his hand. I said, I hear him, I was gonna ask the same question. I think well, we're on the same way well, there. Maybe. Uh, what about the Buddha in everybody? I mean that is a, a teaching in yeah. Which is the same thing with the little way, where we are to see Jesus in everybody. Right. So, I agree that while we're not to make idols of these things, yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree with um, just the, the, the thing that there is no Buddha. You know, yeah. What we do with pastors, though, we put them up on this pedestal. Well, I think. Well, let me ask you a question. Why? Why? Why do you have to have one? Have a have a Buddha or Jesus or a, a leader. Yeah. Where's the leader coming from? Why why do you have to have a leader? Everyone's looking for the leader. To lead them to God. What what's the deal with that? Don't you guys look inside? Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's bringing a good point to to what you were saying. You know, there. If you take it to be. What happened when Moses left? They made a god. Right. They, they well. Need something. Everybody needs one thing to. Do they? Together and Do they? So that there's no, I don't, not personally, I don't think. No, I, I think what you're saying is that that's the human tendency yeah, is to seek a leader. And yeah. we're, always, we're always trying to yeah, find so that. Say so, yeah, so we, if, if we recognize that tendency as a human, then we know stop looking for a leader among us and follow the light of them. Yeah, and I think to what you were saying just real quick is that, you know, they're. Well, if you take this to be true, you know, historically, there was a Jesus and there was a Buddha. You know, like a real Jesus and a real Buddha. Um, but I think that you're, the, the point that I think the Buddha was trying to make, and even Jesus was trying to make, is that the Buddha, you know, and the Buddha, yeah, the Buddha would say, you're the Buddha, you're the Buddha, you're the Buddha. And I think Jesus is the same thing, which kind of comes to your point, which is that, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> I don't think we need a leader in the way that we're talking, you know, we typically talk about it. You know, it but seems like the way... Everybody wants a leader. Everybody wants a boss. Everybody wants to have be controlled. That's that's the issue here. I mean, it, it, does everybody want to be controlled? Yeah, I don't know about, I don't control. think everyone wants to be controlled. How about an example? Yeah, okay. Some animals when there's... <laughs> yeah. I think what... I think the... the this, the shift that I think Jesus seems like what, what Jesus was advocating a shift 
of sources. What is the source of your authority? What is the source of, you know, um, your, your leadership, your authority, who you're listening to, who you follow, where the guidance comes from? What, what's the source of it? And I think it seems to me what, what Jesus was consistently teaching is that source is here. It's not out there. It's not, you know, in, in a person. In fact, we all know that, I mean, we even talked about the, I, I teach an ethics class. We talk about how well, you can't confuse law with ethics, right? Because sometimes the laws aren't even ethical, right? you know? So, and so I think it's the same thing that we, we have to shift to the source, which I think is inside us, but this is very difficult to do for many people because religion has sufficiently convinced people that they're sinful, they're bad, they can't be trusted. And so therefore, turning inside to themselves as their source would be, be disastrous. Now, the thing that's a little, doesn't make sense about that logically, is if I'm all bad, sinful, messed up, and untrustworthy, and you say trust me instead, well, well isn't the same true of you? You're messed up, sinful, unreliable also, because we're made out of the same thing. How can you say, oh, you're deceitful inside, so listen to me. You know, um, it, it would be the true, it would be true of everybody, you know, um, all, the, all the way around. Um, you know, so I think what, you know, Jesus lived, you know, a couple thousand years ago. He, he taught within the context of his times, his religious tradition, his terminology, everything. He said it was all related to that. You know, so I think when Jesus, you know, even his, his terms of using father and talking about spirit, he, he was pointing to or referencing something that I think what happens is that we get all like hung up on the terms and miss the point. You know, like the, the spirit, the source is within us. Um, it's not externalized. You know, it's. It's the same thing with God in that, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people deconstruct their view of God. And, and although we maybe don't think of it in these terms, a lot of, you know, a lot of people have a view of God that's kind of sky God. They wouldn't say that necessarily, but, you know, there is a God that is located somewhere up in the sky. You know, uh, I mean, it sounds kind of silly when you say it like that, but... There is a way that people kind of have that idea. You know, God There's is... There's an internet group who created it. Huh? There's an internet atheist group who created the spaghetti monsters. Yeah, the spaghetti monsters, <laughs> you know. Um, and it, it makes, you know, David Ortiz hits a home run, where's he going to point? Yeah. Ah, you know, because we think of God as up and located up, you know, in, in heaven, um, in some place called heaven. And... But so we we really have rigged ourselves, you know. And, and meanwhile, Jesus is saying, you know, no, okay, hey, look, you know, the Father's in me, I'm in Him, I, you know, we're in you, you're in us. You know, He's trying to describe a spiritual reality where there's the absence of separation. The way we have it configured is there's a God located somewhere up there, and we're down here, and we're separate, and so we miss the fact. I think sometimes, I mean, the, the source is 
within us. Jim, yep. don't, don't you think it's like, um, <clears throat> to me, the revelation of Jesus, like <clears throat> the more I've deconstructed my, you know, traditional upbringing and my evangelicalism and that kind of thing, the more that's happened, the more I'm realizing that if Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, if he's the full revelation of what God is, then he reveals to us that God is a guy, right? That he's a normal, you know what I mean? And that when I look at Colossians, it's like Colossians 1 where it says that um, in Christ dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and in him you've been made full. It's like all that stuff keeps pointing back. You know, John 1 that says, you know, no man's seen God at any time, but the only begotten in the bosom of the Father is revealed in That Jesus is saying, this is what God looks like. And then it's good for you that I go away, that I can send the Spirit to do the same thing to you so that Jesus is no longer the only begotten Son of John 3, but he's the first begotten. He's one among many brethren, like Hebrews talks about. So that it's like this, the whole point of, you know, even in, even using Christian terminology, the whole point of the incarnation is, excuse this phrase, but the reincarnation a thousand times over of that of that Jesus in us, right? Right, like, well, I mean, Jesus, they use the parable, unless the seed falls to the ground, right. yeah. Then, yeah. It, then it can't multiply. You know, and the thing that's interesting is that Jesus, I mean, if, Try to understand Jesus and, and his teachings, you know, and, and then um, if, if we equate God and, and life and with, with Jesus, the person, and we keep Jesus alive as a, as a bodily person, okay, then wouldn't that life and that, um, you know, all the things that Jesus was still just be contained within him. There's still that separation, is that what you're saying? Yeah. The, Between you, us and God. Yes, and, you know, um, if we're going to make Jesus God, and then we're going to say, um, okay, and... Uh, I need to somehow get this this something that I that I don't have, but Jesus has it. But Jesus is still alive, so I'm not sure how to get it if He's God. It's almost like if I have this, you don't have it. I have it. You know, I just walk back to my car with this, and you're not going to have it. Um, so if how is it that? We say that, that, you know, Jesus has everything and we keep Jesus alive, then how do we get it if all that's true? It's, would be located in Jesus, you know, and I don't know how we would get it. But does it have to be an either or proposition? You know what I mean? Does yeah. it have to, is it, is it necessary to, because to me it's like Jesus, Jesus is almost comes to us as like the anti God. It's like, they had all of these ideas of who God was. If he comes, he's going to be a conquering king. He's going to be, you know, the, the, the savior of Israel from Roman rule, all these things. And he comes as, you know, this normal guy in a backwater town. And so it's like it, the whole Jesus is Lord phrase is so, you know, 
it so supplants what we would consider a Lord being that I, does it have to be both? Because it seems like Jesus, by Jesus' Jesus's lordship is actually a pouring out of that divinity into the rest of us. So that it's not an either or that it's not that he no longer exists. It, I mean, I'm saying, do you think it can be that it's not that he no longer quote unquote exists or is alive, but that it's a both and? I mean, yeah, it's well, I'm just saying that it's kind of taking what you just said is an interesting phenomenon theologically with Christianity is that that Jesus died. And we theologically, you know, let's just talk about theologically. He died, and then we rose him from the dead. Okay, he died, and we brought him back to life. God, did. you know, or God did, or you know, the the Jesus sprung back into his full human life. You know, um, he's just basically the same Jesus of Nazareth. He was before, he just died and then came back, came back as that Jesus. And he's no, still... No one recognized Jesus when he first came back, though. Well, and I don't know, and we put Jesus, that Jesus wherever. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's where we say, okay, well, I guess maybe there has to be a heaven because that's probably where Jesus is. I mean, somebody with a body who's walking, you know, the form, physical place to right, the former Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. If we just yeah. pop him back up, you know, he's got a. He's either floating around in the sky, or there's actually some place up there. Like if we went out there far enough, we'd run into a place and Jesus would be walking around there. So, in terms of Christian theology, I think the hard, the, the challenge is, is that Jesus so much said how much he had to die. And the whole gospel hinges on Jesus dying and the idea that Jesus is going to will over his life. You know, and this was part of the significance of, of his death, is that, you know, um, he's willing over his life. Uh, you know, he and the Father have become one. Um, they're going to, it's going to be a sacrificial death. He's going to will over his life. If, if Jesus is willed over this life, well, then where is it? Is it, where is this life that he's willed over? Is it? It's in us. It's in us. But the question that you got to kind of work through with Christian theology, which is sort of a little sticky, is that, okay, but if you raise Jesus back up, if that Jesus of Nazareth just came back up, then doesn't he still have the life that he said he was going to give and he had to die in order to give it? Jesus said he had to die to give that life. Otherwise, right, Jesus could say, well, I'm God, I'll just do it some other way. Here, here's the life. I'll, I'll just like, I'll, you know, I'll do this big God thing and somehow put my life in you. But Jesus kept on saying, no, I, I have to die for you to um, and you can take that a couple of ways, like to get the life, or at least to have that life risen up within you. It's there, but maybe it's dormant. Maybe it's you know um, that that transition, the, the that sort of resurrection has to do with the 
the lifting up of that life that Jesus had being one with the Father that he had to die so that that life could be lifted up in us. But if we lift Jesus up and put it back in him somewhere floating out there in heaven, how can it then... But it doesn't have to come out of... I mean, can't we share it? You know, like, why would, why would it have to go back to him and out of us if he's raised? And that, if, yeah, if, and that, that would be a good question. See, you know, see, what you were starting with, with your, your anarchy... You know, I love that because to me that is Richard Ward talking sound prayer and all of that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it links to this. I mean, we're not, we're finding God by looking inside of us. And we're getting rid of all of that stuff that you're talking about that we create to live in this reality. But we connect God by getting rid of it. That's not God. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so in other words, you're saying that the path to get there is getting rid of what's in the way. Yes. Like, we, there's nothing to really need to... letting go. Yeah, there's like really nothing to add. It's already there. Yes. It's just that we've got to, um, to, to move out of the way. And... There is a way you can understand Jesus like this. I think this is why Jesus' ministry was to the lost sheep of Israel fundamentally. Is basically Jesus was saying, look guys, you're in the way. You're blocking the way. Like, And so we got to get, this has to be figured out because as it stands now, you're not going to get into the kingdom and you're blocking everybody else from getting into it. Think about all the things that Jesus said. You know, um, and... I, it, it, there's a way that I feel like if Jesus, let's say, you know, Jesus came today, he'd go to the Christian church because that would be his, you know, the people that would be, I think, the equivalent of the lost sheep of Israel um, because we're, we're the people who, you know, claim to be representatives of Jesus. And Jesus is not worried about irreligious people and Gentiles, really, because they, they can figure out what Jesus was talking about in a way is like, is almost uh, they're self-evident for a person who's willing to really connect and listen to what's deep within them. But the reason why so many of us can't do it is we got all this religious stuff in the way. So I think Jesus comes to Christianity. They're the lost sheep of Israel and says, hey, guys, you're blocking the way. You're, you're going to miss the kingdom of God and everybody else here is going to miss it because you're the obstacle. You're the stone in front of the tomb that won't let the spirit be lifted up in the people because of what, what we've done here. So we've got to clean this up first. You know, and so just getting back to your point that I think that that if and in the inner inner, inner anarchy book, and I think I can sort of say this because I'm one of them, you know, I mean I was the you know, the seminary grad, senior pastor blocking the way for everybody you know um, you know unintentionally and even sincerely but you could be sincerely wrong you know um, but one of the things that I kind of talk about a little bit in the inner anarchy is addressing the you know the Christian religion specifically and saying okay we have two choices here we can and I know I'm speaking in broad terms and I don't I don't speak on behalf of all the Christians I'm just kind of speaking from my 
particular Christianity is that we're not going to get in and we're blocking everybody else. So instead, you know, why don't we, why don't we be more on the front end of, you know, removing the obstacles and allowing, you know, opening the way for everybody to get in rather than what we're doing right now, which is that we're, we're, we're making it very difficult for people because of what we've done, you know, with Jesus and our theology and things like that. So what can we do to remove the obstacles? Can I say something? Yes. I've been waiting in. Okay, yeah, we'll do that. Let's, let's yeah. this question first. Go ahead, yeah. Because I, I was going to answer her question. I think we're all we're looking at this whole thing wrong. We're looking at it literally. And Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is metaphorical. See, that's a big... That's a big... Um, Kind of dividing, uh, not That's dividing line. Yeah, it breaks down for whether or not That's you're going to. Yeah, whether or not you're going to understand. But isn't that what we're supposed to do inside after we get ta- you know taxified through the church? Aren't we supposed to deconstruct and then reconstruct? I mean, isn't that the whole point? It's the inner being that we're looking at. Let's just you know look at things metaphorically and what it means for us internally. Because we're talking about all the, all these things we're talking about are external. Let's look at the internal and what we should be doing to rebuild our faith beliefs. And Jesus, to me, is just an example of how we should live. His, um, to me, his death was just an act of surrender that we are to follow after. Uh, and, and, and he showed love and surrender, and that's what we should be doing rather than, you know, that's nonviolent atonement. Right. right? Uh, and I, I agree that there's, you know what, there's a way that you can understand Jesus purely in his humanity even. And, you know, this world would be a lot better off if we had just taken that step. Okay, so there's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the thing that, and then I'm just speaking for me, you know, what it seems to me is that the message of Jesus um has not been understood. What do you understand it as? Well, hold on. Let, let, let's get back to okay, that. Let's okay, okay, okay. question. Yeah. I think it is tied into all this. Obstacles. Well, well, what, how do we remove the obstacles? So we can do something useful with our new knowledge. The obstacles to getting to your question? Is that... Yeah, <laughs> 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 you know, Justin. Yes, it's... In a way, so how do we stop being in the way? Or how do we stop out of the way? How do we... Okay. Um, so here's, here's a thought on that is that I think let's take that the source is within us. Okay. And then the question is, well, okay, how do we access the source? You know, do we need a Bible scholar to teach us? Do, do, should we sign up for how to connect with the source classes? Should we, uh, you know, what do we do exactly? Okay. So. This is a problem where Jesus didn't have to deal with the Gentiles. It was the religious people that had a hard time with this. Is that my own, what I think is that the sources within us, and we all have those experiences, those moments, those experiences, when something happens within us at a level that I don't, it's hard to find words to describe, and the words that I currently use for it is I just refer to it as deep feelings. 
There is a deep feeling that bubbles up from within us. It gives us an awareness of something that we feel that we know that's true, even though we can't explain it, but we know it to be more true than anything we know that's true. And there's often these homecoming sensations that are related to it. It's There's an experience and a deep feeling that rises up within us that um, I think is is emanating from that source. Uh, anything can trigger it. You could be listening to music. You could be walking in nature. You could be having an experience where you feel a deep connection with another human being. But something bubbles up from deep inside of us, which is, I think, is an opening up of the spirit within us. And the the important thing to do at that moment is to speak from that to others in your own words as naturally as possible. That's the thing that has to happen. That's that's what's going to eventually tear down all the other stuff. It's, it's going to require people to authentically and courageously speak in their own words what that source and that spirit is telling them or showing them or revealing to them or experiencing inside of them. I think this is why... You know, Jesus so often said, well, you're not going to get into the kingdom unless you're like a kid. Only children, you have to become like a child to get into the kingdom. Um, it would be, it would be better off, you know, I mean, we're thinking that we need all these, um, you know, this, this endless amount of information and knowledge and all this kind of thing. And I'm not saying the knowledge and, you know, I mean, I've benefited from the studies I've done, you know, in seminary and so on. So I'm not, I'm just saying that rather than, um, I don't think it's so much of, well, or what needs to happen now is I don't think it's so much of, okay, here's the bad idea. You know, let's like tear that one down. Let's, you know, and tell everyone, well, don't believe that anymore because that theological point or that understanding or whatever is no longer useful and let's get rid of it. I don't think it's really that. I think it's the other piece that needs to happen, which is that people need to begin to speak out of that place of their, of that source of those deep feelings that bubble up from within us and whatever those show you, whatever you feel and experience there, that you be will that we be willing to speak that to each other. You weren't there for the conversation, but isn't this kind of like what we were talking about living in the moment, being present in the moment, following yeah. the spirit like yeah. there is when you went and mowed your neighbor's lawn. You know, you felt, you know, how is the spirit moving me to love this person? And well, so is that kind of what I think it is. The only thing I would add to it is that I think that the speaking it out is important. And what I mean by that is that we all feel things deep inside us, you know, uh, that, that that I think is the, the a higher spiritual presence, spiritual life, the presence of love, you know, the spirit, whatever word you want to put on that. And we so easily talk ourselves out of it. We doubt it. We think we're silly. We think that, you know, that we've been taught that we're bad. We can't trust what we feel. There's all these things that prevent us from speaking out of that to one another in our own words as as naturally 
as a child would say it if they felt and experienced it. And that that's, to me, what a lot of what's missing. Yeah, encouraging one another on their path. One thing I would say, too, is in the context of this group, because we have people from so many diverse backgrounds, you know, we've got people who are Eastern Orthodox, who are Catholic, who are agnostic, who are charismatic, who are outside the institutional church altogether. And I think one thing that we, that is really important to note is that there's a toxic way to hold your beliefs Mm -hmm. and a non-toxic way. And so, for instance, we're talking, Jim, about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. I think there's a really toxic way to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I think there is a really non-toxic way to believe in it. And then there's a way to not believe in it at all, right? But I think it's, I think there's a, there's A, a hospitality that's important when, in order to achieve what you're talking about with, uh, within humanity, where we're going to love each other, we're going to cooperate with each other, we're going to give grace to each other. There's a hospitality that's required wherein I allow you to be you, fully you, without me needing to either A, colonize your mind, and you know what I mean, and take over and plant my stuff in you, or B, conform to who you are, or C, just disconnect from each other. I think there's another option. You know what I mean? And it seems like, you know, there's conversations happening right now, not just in Christianity, but in Islam and Judaism, and all these different faith traditions wherein we're finding um, you know, it wasn't only 50 years ago that a Pentecostal never would have talked to an independent Baptist, right? I mean, because they they were anathema to each other. Um, We're in a day and age where like you said, you can go into a Ronald McDonald house and work with a Muslim and a Jew in love, realizing that there's there's a mutuality there. And yet I just, want, I just want people to realize, because I don't, we have such a diverse group here, I don't want you guys to think you have to quit being who you are, but simultaneously, we've got to, we've got to recognize that God's bigger than our version of it. Yeah, it's almost like what she was saying um, earlier about how do we do this together kind of thing. Yeah. It's really, and thinking about what, what it was also said about the Bible being understood metaphorically and so on, is that mm-hmm. what's interesting is that, you know, Bethlehem, um, in its translation, means house of bread. Or it could be a household or family that brings forth bread um, that nourishes, that overcomes, you know. um, And so what about the possibility that there's a way that we are the household we are the family that burrs this bread out of us to one another, to the world. We're lifting up, to use the kind of religious term, we're lifting the Messiah out of us as a family into the world. Um, it's not that Jesus is going to topple down out of the sky, riding a horse with a sword, but that the the return of Christ, you know the the if if, in, if if you think in these terms of a messianic age or the return of Christ, you know that 
that maybe we are the spiritual Bethlehem, we're the household, we're the family that brings forth this bread to the world. And it seems to me that that we do this by connecting with and expressing out of and particularly speaking out of those those deep feelings and that opening up of the spirit within us and where we're willing to to lift it up out of us through our words you know and, and through our actions uh you know out here but i did so for some reason it's really hard for people to do that you know we want to defer to and you know we quote other religious leaders we've got all our gurus we follow we're, we're afraid to speak for ourselves often. We're using other people's language. We got it all, you know, um, stuffed up in all our religious language and all the religious terminology, you know, and people are quoting Bible verses. I just want to say, what do you feel in here? Just tell me. You know, like, bring it. Be authentic and speak in your own words the truth that you already know that's deep inside of you. The minute you start adding all those layers to it, then it's lost. But it's... Yeah. Can I give an example? An example. Um, in my own life, maybe it'll, maybe it'll shed some light. Maybe it won't. But um, give to. Go what's your name, Rebecca? Rebecca. Maybe it helps. Maybe it'll help a little. Maybe it won't. But my daughter, you know, who I raised, 29, you know, is married. Her husband is a youth pastor. Very conservative, fundamental. I mean, extremely, you know, legalistic. And uh, but yeah, she's my daughter. Okay, and I love her unconditionally. Okay, unconditional love, I think, is a key word. The thing is, it's been, you know, over time now, she's seen me move in this direction, you know, uh, totally leaving you know, that, th- those kind of, you know, that, that way and coming over to a, a more of a uh, all-inclusive, you know, belief system. And But because I've loved her unconditionally and I share with her my love and I don't judge her or show, you know, condemn her, I, I can slowly see her moving, you know, towards me. Even as of yesterday, I told her how we came yesterday to the to the behind the box gathering and told her all that and how it was so great and how her brother, who you know is totally different than her, is that you know came with me. How we had a wonderful time and it was really great and she was excited and happy and I can just see her slowly moving towards me because of the unconditional love that I'm showing her. To me, that's what's going to bring us all together. As one, you know, what, no matter what, you know, religious, you know, beliefs we might have, it's that unconditional love. I think that as we show that, that is what's going to take the obstacles out of the way. James, I think that, like what I was saying earlier, that's you're giving a great example of what I was trying to say. Because in religion, we've been taught that you only have three options: you either mm-hmm. colonize them, mm-hmm. you conform to them, or you exclude them. Yeah, and they're all three really toxic. They're just toxic, mm-hmm. you know. There's a better way, you know. Whatever yeah. we believe about 
all these things, you know, whatever our mm-hmm. our pet beliefs are, you know, those, that's almost secondary to, I mean, what you're saying, Jim, with, you know, the spirit inside of following love. Because, you know, as a, as a group, I think the one thing that most of us hold to, and I'm not trying to speak for the group here, but I'm just saying I've noticed is this idea of ultimate reconciliation, that eventually, whatever it is, somehow we all end up in the right place, right? That we all end up with God, whether that's however you want to interpret that. So if we really believe that, then that means somehow God, in the end, overlooks all our idiosyncrasies, or maybe they're idiosyncrasies, I don't know. (laughs) He overlooks all that, uh, because love's really what matters in the end. Amen. Amen. of it was this realization that I came to that it was inside this kind of understanding that I have no enemies and there is no enemy in terms of uh, that, that all we have is the, uh, the, the, the views, the attitudes, the, the mindsets, the, the mentalities that we have that are that, that rule us from within. We all we all have that and it's universal. And and so therefore it's really a basis also for compassion because I can I can see that the person who is inflicting harm upon myself or somebody else, it would it would be really easy to uh, you know th- then sort of hate the person and make them my enemy, and uh, then become really kind of lost in this resentment towards this person. In other words, making it very personal in in ways that kind of keep you locked, chained to the whole experience. And so I think that a big part of it for me was... was, it's as strange as this seems because I experienced sexual abuse as a kid growing up, is that uh, not seeing it as something personal and and uh, understanding it as um, a, a reflection of you know the the mindset, the pathologies, the um, 
that, that, that all of us have that have power within us, and therefore we act out of them and we do whatever you know we're going to do. You know, uh, I mean, all, all that ever happens in life is just what actually happens, and then after that is the interpretation that you put on it, and it's the interpretation you put on it that determines what your emotional response is and how you respond to it. You know, uh, and so I think a lot of suffering that people have is because they're, um, they're, they're, they're adding an understanding of something that takes place and that and a lot of their suffering is coming from you know what they put on it so like you know if if you're somebody who's gone through abuse you know like you can add the interpretation well obviously there's something wrong with me i'm bad you know that's what this must mean you know uh i mean i can't tell you how many you know meetings I've gone to with people who are victims of abuse and they feel shame themselves as if they are bad, dirty, something's wrong with them because of what was done to them. You know, like the message they took from it was, I'm, I'm bad and I'm worthless. I mean, who does this to someone who's not like that? There must be something wrong with me. Um, and so I guess in a way it's sort of deconstructing, you know, the the meanings that you apply to um, those experiences so that you can kind of come out from under them. And I think you can, and so I, I find a, some ability to have compassion because I understand the dynamics of it. You know, uh, you could have taken me out of the equation and put anybody else in there, it would have been the same. It wasn't me personally. You know, like there's something wrong with me, or that I'm bad, or something like that. You know, um, so, you know, understanding more of my mother's life, for example, really helped me develop a, a, a more compassion for her. You know, her father was an alcoholic, he died very young. You know, she was raised by an iron-fisted mother. You know, and um, she lost her first child you know, uh, develop, you know, mental illness, you know, uh, and so, you know, uh, and, and that really kind of formed a, a basis of, you know, compassion and, and allowed me to kind of let go of the story about Jim. And it's kind of the same way with religion is the human beings need permission to walk away from the story. You're bad. You're sinful. You know, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself. You know, I had to kill Jesus because that's just how bad you are. My only son. I only had one who I loved. And you're so bad, you know, that I had to kill him. You know, I mean, honestly, I don't know how... It's a wonder that anybody ever gets past the kind of inner pathology you can develop in terms of how you think about yourself in that scenario. You know, um... How did you deconstruct that sin, that definition of sin? Okay, can, can I do that yeah. along with that, and exactly mm -hmm. what Patricia's asking of you about what was the aha moment? Can I just interject here? But did, have you, psychologically, I know you've done a lot of study in this area, studied attachment theory 
has that helped you do the deconstructing of the sin? Yeah. With the bullied and those guys. Yeah, and and that that break raises a good point to to kind of mention is that you know um and I don't know this might sound a little odd but one of one of the things that I have discovered is that you know um one of the things that human beings that we sometimes don't do well is we don't respond to situations as they require. You know, like we just don't. You know, so we find ourselves in all kinds of, you know, like I'll have people say, oh, you know, they'll contact me and, you know, describe a lot of situations in their life and so on, and they're asking God to help them and praying that God will release them and things like this. And then what I'll notice is, that, okay, but the, the, the missing part here is that you're not responding to the situation as it requires. You know, it's almost like, um, depression may be an example. You know, uh, there's, there's all, and I kind of wrote about this in Notes from Over the Edge that, you know, uh, um, depression is, the the issue of responding to the situation as it as it requires what does depression require well i don't you know it could require any number of things you know it would could you know um require seeing uh being on medication you know it could require you know uh Addressing issues in your life, seeing a psychiatrist, a therapist, or whatever, you know, like it, it could, any of those things. But instead, people may not do that, and they're seeking some kind of spiritual resolution to it, rather than responding as the situation actually requires. So, you know, um, for example, my codependence, you know, like, uh, you know, I could have prayed and asked God to release me from it and have all my friends pray, please, you know, help Jim not be codependent. So, you know, but the situation required, at least for me, is to understand the dynamics of codependence. So therefore, then I could understand it and, you know, could uh, release myself from it or at least seek the kind of support that would be necessary for someone to not be codependent, to not be an alcoholic, to whatever it is. You know, uh, that's why I think it's so unfortunate some, if you were in a tradition where religion kind of demonized psychology or you know, things like this, because then we don't really address the situation, you know, as it requires. I mean, we are human beings. We have situations mentally, emotionally, psychologically, you know, in all kinds of different ways. And we just don't address them um, as we should. I mean, we're, we, we've not really even developed very far with the skill of just uh, responding to the human situation. I mean, we're so concerned about figuring out God and all the spiritual answers to everything, and rather than just addressing that, whatever the matter is that you know there is to to be addressed. Um, so, are you throwing out the idea? Well, what I would, I think the way I think about that now is that that spirit, the source is within us, and that spirit, that source, you know, um, we, 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 
live out of that. We, we follow, um, you know, what we're shown. You know, uh, we bring human expression to, to what that is. Um, and, you know, that's going to be different for everybody. You know, how that works out for them. You know, what it looks like in their humanity. Um, because I've done a lot of good things in my life. I've done a lot of outreach work, and I've been a good person, but a lot of bad things have happened to me. So me being young, I'm still trying to struggle with seeking advice on how to deal with that, and everybody that I ever ask that I look at, like, who's been in the church and has done all the teachings will always say, well, friend, it's part of God's plan for you. And I'm not okay with that. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it, I think yeah. it, yeah. And I, don't yeah. know where to I don't think any of us are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, like, that's not an answer for me. That's right. Not, yeah. I think that, like a yeah. yeah, the idea that, uh, that, that somehow the, 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 the pain and suffering of our world is, Working is working out according to a plan that God has, you know, uh, doesn't seem real. Well, let me ask you, Jim, and piggybacking on Jareen's question, and I think also on hers, about sin and original sin, you know, so much of the pathologies and all the things that we do comes from this sense of being separated, right? That there, that we have this like. A primal sense of separation from something that we should be connected to. Yeah. And you know, Augustine developed the whole idea of original sin and that we're bad, and it's because we made God mad and so he turned his back on us, <laughs> yeah. you know. Right. That whole thing. So if it's not that, which I don't believe it is, what is that sense of original sin that causes us to feel like we're missing something? Like, why is it that all of us have that sense? You know, like he talked about the God-shaped hole and that whole thing. Why is it that we feel incomplete, if not for a primal sin by a primal couple or whatever? What do you, in your opinion, what is it that has caused us to have that sense of being cut off from something that we need? Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting that people. Well, I don't know. They like they. Uh, I think sometimes people forget that the first part of the story was in, G in, in Genesis 1 where God made everything and it was good. You know, like that's the beginning. Like the sin part happens later. So the I, you know, what about our original goodness? I mean, the Bible doesn't teach original sin. It teaches original goodness. And then there's kind of what happens and unfolds after that. You know, um, and... So, you know, there's almost two parts of this. It's hard to separate the two, which is what is sin and what does the salvation of our souls or the world mean? Like, it's kind of hard to miss all the stuff in the Bible where Jesus talks about, you know, salvation and there's going to be some ending and somehow something's going to work out in the end and there's like some salvation, you know, um, um, and and what that whole thing is about. Now, what I began to see with sin 
but I've kind of, in a way, sort of, I don't know, moved past it or even discarded it a bit, is that seeing sin as missing the mark or falling short of what? You know, like um, that it's, it could be one of two things, you know, it's, it's, it's missing the mark or falling short of what um, that source and spirit is willing and capable to give and desires for us to share in an experience. And so with all these mentalities and mindsets that we have acquired, um, it has caused, you know, when we're functioning in that way, when we're, um, then we're certainly falling short of or, or missing the mark of what is available within us, you know, uh, and certainly God, so to speak, would be opposed to that scenario, you know, like I don't want my own daughter to live a life where she's missing out on a life of peace and well-being and freedom and love. You know, and so when I, if I spotted that, then I, I'd be, you know, very intent about, you know, um, uh, you know, wanting to address that obstacle that's in the way for her um, to, you know, to, to experience that. And so, uh, so I don't, you know, the idea that we're inherently sinful and that that separates from separates us from God. You know, I, I mean, it seems like that there's anything that seems pretty clear from Jesus' teaching was that there isn't separation. Like, and in my mind, when I was saying before, where the Buddha came to address one issue and Jesus came to address another, I think the main issue that Jesus, one of the, the, the main thing that Jesus addressed was the falsehood of separation. So is the problem then that we haven't realized? Like, is that where the sense of it comes from? That it's more of a realization issue than an actual, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's definitely um, not, the, the separation is not real. And I'm not sure that that separate, uh, you know, I'd have to think about it for a while to just, just kind of check and see, like just thinking about the people that I know, is that I think that sense of separation is mostly felt by people who, you know, have come from a religious... I'm not sure everybody feels that question. separation. Yeah, wow. the way religious people sometimes wow. do. Because wow. we're told that. We're told. Right. We're, <laughs> right. It's almost yeah. like... See, the... You know, like think about how advertising creates a need you don't really have to sell right. something. Wow. So that there's a way that you've that hole. <laughs> well, like you don't have the hole that you're yeah. describing. Yeah. We all have concocted the idea and been told there's one. I mean, it was a religious person, so to speak, that came up with the idea. Oh, well, there's a religious hole that only God can fill. Mm -hmm. You know, um, becomes a power play almost to keep you tied to that. To that thing that that right, and, and and evangelical Christianity way has a you know it's the carrot and stick you know yeah. that the the carrot and you know it's very sort of dualistic in a way that the, you know we all the, the big carrot and the stick is the carrot is heaven and the stick is hell 
So you can really get lock people in when you know, and I think that that's really in my own. So what it seems like what I've been seeing is that. Well, here's just something to consider. Jesus is not going to come down out of the sky. He's not going to ride in a horse with a sword and figure everything out and solve it in the end. And he never said he was going to. And that instead, consider the possibility that the, the, um, we are to be birthing this sort of messianic and salvific sort of work in the world ourselves. That's it, it's us. New creation. Huh? New creation. Living out the new creation. Yeah. Um, yeah we're the answer to our own problems, yes. is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we're to be birthing. There's the possibility of birthing in giving birth to this reality that seems like Jesus described about being saved, which if you look at the word saved, sozo, it means things like being whole. Um, the, the descriptions of the word is about well-being and wholeness and so on. You know, and that uh, it has nothing to do with this. It really doesn't have anything to do with this idea that you're going to escape like eternal damnation and it's like swooped up into this eternal paradise, you know. Um, and I don't know, there's, there's some scriptures lately that I've been kind of fascinated with is that, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's at least, there's a few places, I, I can only think of two right now, but I think there's more than that, where um, Jesus claims that if you believe or you cling to, trust, and grab a hold of the, the truth he's bearing witness to. Not himself, the person, but the truth he came to demonstrate and bear witness to, that um, you won't die. I mean, go and look at it. In fact, no, not that like you're not you're gonna go to hell. But there's a few places where, and in one place, well, the one place he says it, he he says he may he asks the po- a pointed question to the woman he's having a conversation about this with is 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 it possible for her to really believe him about this? Then there's another place where the religious leaders accuse him of being a demon. And that is, you know, the beginning of the end for Jesus once he makes that claim. I mean, just go back and read it. I think it's John 8, 51, and it's the thing where Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. There's a couple times, there's two or three times where it's really difficult to read that passage and come up with anything other than Jesus is saying you're not going to die. To metaphoricalize it into some idea of eternal life and you're going to go to heaven would really be adding something to what Jesus was saying in that situation. If you don't believe me, just go look at it and see what you think. You know, um, and if you combine that with this idea, this sozo idea of saving, you know, which is to, you know, to be healed, to be whole, 
um, uh, to be preserved, um, to be abundantly supplied for, and so on. Now, you know, so I don't know. It's just one of those interesting, you know, things that Jesus said <laughs> that you start to wonder at least if maybe there's a little more to it than Christianity ever came up with in terms of what Jesus was trying to say. I mean, I even think it's fascinating, you know, that Jesus is the like, I mean, does he, do you ever find it interesting that, I mean, arguably, Jesus is the, the most controversial, contentious sort of human being in history. It'd be hard to find somebody else who's... Well, he said he came to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... The thing about it is, is that, well, I, I mean, I can say, well, sure, the reason why that is, it was sort of a big deal. I mean, here's one guy who basically, you know, one single person who really disturbed an entire religious tradition of thousands of years and managed to become, you know, a person of interest and ultimately was executed through the, the joining of the, both the religion and the political powers of the day that were threatened. I mean, that's a lot for one person to do. You know, to sort of derail an entire religious tradition and upset, you know, just one person. You know, so the fact that we still talk about him and so, I mean, he's definitely a person of history. You know, I mean, and you might say, well, I mean, we can think of others for good or bad, right? You know, like Hitler or Martin Luther King Jr. and so on. But, you know, um, so there is that human explanation, and I get that. that it just could be, you know, that. You know, he, there just aren't that many people who seem to quite stir it up the way Jesus did. So even a thousand years later, we still are sort of enthralled with this person and what he did and what happened in the circumstances of his day and so on, you know. But there's a part of me that feels like that maybe Christianity fumbled the ball a little bit in terms of maybe what the full scope of the message was that Jesus had. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to push back a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you were talking about how religion creates this uh, sense of separation. Yeah. And which is true, of course. But I think also it could be if you look at psychoanalysis, you know, just by the fact that we're self-conscious, finite beings, we do sort of feel a sense a sense of incompleteness, like there's a gap. Yeah. Because of our finity. And, you know, we think we need something to make us whole. And I, and I kind of almost see, see the incarnation as God, you know, um, entering into that that uh, messiness, that incompleteness, and almost embracing it. As if, you know, wholeness and brokenness actually coincide on some level. And we live in that paradox. And we should embrace it. We should embrace that paradox instead of trying to find that which is going to make us whole. Yeah, that, that's such a good um, question on, you know, uh, it's such a challenging, interesting sort of question on whether or not we are to accept and embrace our brokenness or if the point is for that brokenness to be healed and made whole and at what point, which, and why, the, you know, you know, because like, there's this sort of illusionary thing that sometimes Christianity seems to come up with with this idea of, like, I don't know, you know, the oldest God in the new is 
Um, and so you're really not getting it right unless you're walking around in sinless perfection. And we all know there's something about that that just doesn't seem right. You know, uh, on the other hand, though, like, you know, there would be, there's this little something incomplete with me if I saw my daughter struggling through her own life and heartache, pain, suffering, and brokenness. I, I would feel like it would be difficult that there would be a part of me that would would still long for her to be whole and would have a difficult time accepting this, you know, um, because of my desire for her to be whole and free, you know. Um, and so it's, Sometimes it's uh, I have you know challenge trying to figure out on whether or not our human suffering is something that we sort of embrace and sort of say well it's just kind of part of being human and you know after all Jesus experienced it and because right now the Christian version is well okay it's all messed up now but then Jesus is going to swoop in and it's all going to be perfect in heaven right? no tears. We're all going to be doing everything we want. No more pain. You know, they're just, and then the question is, if that's true, what kind of God sits around for two thousand years and does like, why not push that button now? Yeah. You know, like, what, what's prolonging it? Why, if if the end game here is heaven and no misery and no tears and all happiness, then why, you know, surely all these people who've gotten up there by now are saying, look, you know, we have loved ones down here. Can't we kind of get this show on the road? And what accounts for the fact that, that somehow it's okay that God's observing suffering, pain, distress, you know, in, in our created order and still persist to not take an action, you know, um, to resolve it. Something about that just, just, I mean, I wouldn't if I was an all-powerful God and I could step in at any moment and correct it, why wouldn't I? What would be the explanation? It's not the right time. Purpose in our suffering, right? Do what? The, pur the purpose in suffering is to show empathy, isn't it? Empathy and love walk hand in hand, correct? Yeah. So our purpose in suffering is so we can show empathy Everything. to others, right? Otherwise, how can we're we are saying, why doesn't God do something? Yeah, I'm saying, saying, because why aren't you doing something? How would we ever come to the point of empathy if we, if we didn't suffer? Do what? How would we ever come to the point of empathy if we never suffered? I don't know, but I wouldn't mind giving it a shot. <laughs> I mean, I, I would I might be willing to let go of my empathy if it meant everybody would be... Well, Jeff, let me ask you, what if we envisioned God, because the traditional model has been that of an all-powerful God? Right. If we switch that to that of an all-loving God, love works by persuasion and not coercion, yeah. so that an all-loving God necessitates human history because it takes this evolution of human history. Because, you know, it's like Paul talked about the weakness of God. That the weakness of God was his strength. That, that, the weak, that love is this weak force, this weak power that's more powerful than coercion. But it also takes longer because you can't, you, you don't, you can't rush, whereas power would rush in and just take over all the circumstances and fix them. Yeah. Love won't transgress your will. Love won't transgress, or maybe even can't. I don't. Maybe even can't's a better word. That right. well, love, by definition, can't transgress your. Yeah. Although I'd have to say, yeah, I, you know, if I was, um, if my middle daughter, I, you know, came home and suddenly walk in on a situation where she's being raped 
What does the all-powerful God do? What does the all-loving God do? I'm not sure it's any different. You know, like in the sense that I'm wanting to, out of love, you know, my natural instinct is to want to bring it in to the pain and the suffering. Like, you certainly would even arrest me if I did nothing. But what I'm saying is, what if, I'm not saying, like, I know the traditional juxtaposition is God's all-loving and He's all-powerful. Yeah. I'm saying, what if He's not all-powerful? Right. In reality, what okay. if God is just all-loving all and does so not that, have the power to right? enact so any kind of change in the world? power is persuasion, and therefore, you're, if we're talking about us as incarnations of God in the earth, yeah. That the reason that girl gets raped is because you're not doing something. Right. Because you are the manifestation of God in the earth. Right. It's not because God's withholding this power that he's going, okay, wait, 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 wait. Now. You know what I mean? So in other words, we're back to that we're responsible. Right. That we actually are sourced with what's necessary to um, intervene and connect to and live lives of wholeness. Doesn't love require free will? I mean, love. Doesn't love require free will? If God was to intervene every time, where would free will fit in? Yeah. Well, what if God can't even intervene? That's my thing. What if God is limited? Is what you're saying, right, Warren? Yeah, I'm saying, like, what if... Yeah, like, the, the God... The, 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 the reason why, you know, God's not sitting around waiting. He... God, you know, like look at all this language we're doing. Like there's a sky God somewhere and he actually can't. He does not have the power to and he chooses not to. But then but then you've really got a problem, I think. Yeah, that, that makes that's why what if, what if he actually does wipe every tear eventually? In other words, what if it's not that he's so limited that he can't do anything, but that he's so Amazingly in control. That he's allowing that, people that, to... that the the Buddhist view of illusion, which doesn't really make it. I mean, I feel all the suffering. I feel every bit of it. But that that we have faith in the fact the suffering that we go through, that he can heal it. But doesn't that beg the question that Jim's asking of why doesn't he do something? Yeah. Like, why stand back and watch your child suffer and say, but I'm going to take care of it eventually? Like, I think that's the question. We do, have, we do have a part, though. We do have a part. I'm very concerned, as Jim is, with I mean, these questions he asks. Right. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that that ties it around then to, then, like, we are God in this world. In that sense, so if if God, if like what I think is happening is we're conveniently blaming God for our inaction, right. or right. waiting for God I to fix it, or waiting for God to fix it because like, the, the way God. So, I, I agree with that, but I also want to say um, the damage that I've seen I've done to other people has more to do with me trying to help them than me fix it. You're trying to fix. Exactly. Yeah, I it's, think... it's it's letting God surrendering it. It gets back to that inner anarchy, letting go, surrendering it, and allowing God's presence to be here. Yeah. To know when a person needs a hug. I, I think we're I think we're 
kind of heading in the same direction, Tommy. I don't think we're really arguing with each other. I'm, I'm no, trying to tie these various th threads together in my own mind to understand what we're talking about because I think, yes, being letting God live through us, knowing when to give a hug, knowing what to do in that moment, I think that's what Jesus was trying to show us, that the Spirit reveals that to us in the moment. Like when he tells the disciples, don't worry when you're called before the, the council to give an answer because when in that moment you'll know what to say. And we try to plan it all out ahead of time. What are we going to do to fix these problems? What are we going to do? And in that moment, if we're living in the now, which I know you like, right? If we're living in the now and listening to the Spirit of God within us now and being the flesh of the Spirit of God on this earth, then we're going to know what to do in that moment so that we do heal those hurts. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes I want to go to, uh, like in maybe a snarky moment, go to, uh, you know... A, you have those two? Church or something, you know, and say, look, we've been waiting 2,000. You're going to be waiting another 2,000. It's not going to happen the way you we think. Yeah. Or the way you tell me. We're going to be waiting a long time. My dad my was first for that about, why do you keep asking why it's taking so long? Like, they throw that at you. Right, right. My dad yeah, was yeah. by the time I was 35, I'd see the full horsemen's come out of the sky. Yeah. All right. I lived my early life expecting to see it. See it happen, yeah. I don't think that's true of anybody in evangelicalism. So think about the possibility that the um, that if if any this that this thing that Jesus was was talking about, if this, that the it's going to come out of us, you know, it's not going to come down out of the sky. It's going to be birthed out of us into the world. You know, um, and I think if you go back and look at a lot of things that Jesus said, you know, you can see him describing this reality. So, you know, it's... And that's regardless of what you believe about the person of Jesus, right? I mean, regardless of what you believe about his person, that at the end of the day, it's birthed through us into the earth. Yeah, right? no matter where you think maybe, well... Yeah, I mean, any of us, any person can, I think, connect with that source, that spirit, the higher spiritual presence, whatever you want to call it, you know, that I think Jesus was pointing to, that, that, that you know, uh, that he said was within us and to listen to and follow that, you know, uh, you know, think maybe consider the possibility of thinking about this idea of resurrection as that life being raised up from within and out of us. Um, and, and yeah, I keep going, but I have a question. No, that's okay. Okay, so I do you think? Um, what do you think of the? afterlife or what happens to us when we die me if you die <laughs> like I just thought I just I was with my mom when she passed and right. my stepfather and it was just surreal and my grandfather so but it was real traumatic for me and so I, I've been really thinking about that a lot the last couple of years like where is my mom right now or is she anywhere? I mean, so what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, anybody, feel free to chime in here. And do you believe like we're going to get a resurrected body? 
<coughs> that part of what we see in the New Testament. Yeah. I think everybody in the world is a soul. I think that soul is going to go somewhere. You don't know where it's going to go? No. Because that faith is going to go someplace that I hope it goes? Yes. What other answers? We don't know. Since yeah. since I never thought I was gonna die, and by thirty five I'd see the four horsemen. Yeah. Um, I realized that I lived my life not living my life. So I've now actually come to a point that I don't really care yeah. what happens after. I care what's happening now. And I know I trumpet now, 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 but it's so. <laughs> It, it's something that became very important to me because I felt like my evangelical life was looking to something in the future mm -hmm. that, and it wasn't for, to build for something in the future. It, it's like you trade yeah. the one life you know exists yeah. for the life you're not even sure That's of. Right. Right? right. I think what happens is that the other element, though, in this is that I think, like what you were saying, is that the people that we've lost, you know, our loved ones that are no longer here, we want to know. Like, I mean, that is a big question. Where are they now? Will I ever have an experience with them again? Will I ever see them again? You know, of course, this was the view, I think, that most people have about heaven, you know, right? Well, like, you know, we'll see you again in heaven, you know, like that's where it's going to be a reunion and we're going to see all the people that we loved and that we lost and so on. And so, you know, I think that people have a, the question and the hope of being, you know, uh, reunited with people that they love that, um, that they've lost. Well, when you came close to death those two times, did you... Did it make you think of stuff like that? Did you have an NDE that we, I mean, you know, one of those near-death experiences where you had a mystical experience? Um, it wasn't being, it wasn't a mystical experience in that I felt like I was transported to a different dimension. Um, but if you, if you read Being Jesus of Nashville, I kind of describe about how it wasn't until it was in that moment when um, several unclear elements that I had not been able to understand or put together kind of like it. The euphoria comes afterwards popped together and I understood it in a way that I had never previously. Yeah. What, were you, what were you saying? It comes after the euphoria and the near-death experience. It's not in that moment. Okay. Because I've had one as well and it's afterward when you try and put everything into perspective and things just are, are they seem different. It's the way you view things after. After on the other side. Mm -hmm. So where do, where do you think we go when we die? Or not that we go, where do you think it happens to us? Yeah. You have a, a strong sense of... Is it become a philosophical question or is it become a religious question? It doesn't matter to me. Just you, just, you, just want, you just want an answer. I just 
I can just give a little. This is a guy who I've been friends with for many years back in my evangelical days. But every time he posts on my wall, he he'll write, "Jesus is coming back soon." You know, always. You know, but that is because he's suffering. His wife has got serious medical condition. He's just waiting. He's waiting for something better. Now Rayborn posted something on Facebook a while back. Be on the box. Very little, no, hardly no one comments on it. But it was about a guy about, in a insane, you know, Rayburn about, you know, the guy who was in a, in a insane asylum in, in another country oh, and, yeah, and yeah, put yeah. into a cell. Yeah. Talk about that a minute. Where does his hope come from? I think it's extremely important that we have hope, right? Yeah. That we have hope because what about someone like that person who's locked away in a cell and naked and just is living and suffering his whole life? What kind of, now, how, is, how does that person live in the moment? Where does his hope come from? I think it's really important that we all have hope in something better. Well, it, isn't that the whole point of the, like we were talking about the interconnectedness of us all? You know, that, I mean, Paul used the metaphor of the body of Christ. You know, if one, if one member suffers, they all suffer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if we really grab hold of that, then that becomes... Um, we, we can't live our normal life while someone's suffering like that. You know what I mean? Like, like my, my, uh, my destiny is intrinsically tied up with yours. It's not this individual me and Jesus thing. It's, you know, it's, all, it's also a place where the separation comes in. You know, separation influences our experience in a lot of different ways our sense of being separated from God our sense of being separated from each other our sense of being separated by death you know it's all chock full of this idea of separation you know um, you and I are separated but we're not really I mean there's a way we have even you know I mean quantum physics has figured out that even though it appears you and I are separated, there's a very real way that we aren't. You know, uh, and so that's now the, the thing about it is, is I you, so I think that the whole idea of separation and the biggest separator, of course, would be death. You know, uh, the one that seems to be the cloud that hangs over us all. You know, I mean, nobody really wants to die. You may want to go to heaven if you believe in one, but I mean, you know, like the 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 primarily the inner instinct is to want to live. You know, um, not to, you know, which is why so many people are afraid to die and they try to put off death and they try to do everything that they can to avoid death and so on. You know, and I think that it, I think it's because it. It really is symbolizes to us this idea of you know separation. You know we're we're separated from the ones we love, and we don't want that to be true. Or just know. maybe the unknown. Yeah, which could be the unknown. It could be um, you know uh, if if you could somehow if you can accept that you and I are not separated, and could actually draw a bit of. either comfort or, or connect with that in a way that's meaningful. That right now you and I are not separated. You know, uh, even though it, it appears that way, there's a very real way we're not. You know, 
my worst enemy, so to speak, or someone that I that the world would say is, you know, that we're not separated. You know, I guess the question is whether or not you can draw a sense of comfort from the realization that those who have, you know, left their human experience, departed their human body, and moved on into another realm or dimension, you know, that there's still not a separation either. I mean, that's not really going to take the place of the kind of separation that's real, which is that they're not here and I can't touch them physically. But it's not taking into account, you know, but, but there's also this part where that separation is not real and that there is a connection that persists even in a person's bodily absence. I agree with that. Huh? I totally agree with that. I, I don't know if there's an afterlife. And, and as I mentioned, I, I, I don't even think I care anymore. But I do care about people I've lost. Yeah. And um, in my memories, they're inside me, so they're still alive in me. Um, so I, I do try, I have now tried, I didn't before, starting to learn ways to honor those memories. Um, because of having this belief that I just see them in the future, I, I, yeah. I buried the pain of the loss. And I don't want to bury it anymore. I want to honor the loss, honor the fact that I miss them, honor what they did for me in my life, what they meant to me. Blessed are those who mourn because they are comforted, comforted in life when they have them. People who mourn are people who love. That's right. You know, it's just, it's really, it's almost like you've got to come to some kind of determination. You know, like the more I look at a lot of things, it's very difficult not to come to this sort of conclusion that something's really not right something's wrong, something's off, it should not be this way. You know, uh, like, particularly as it relates to, at least in, for myself personally, in my Christian past, the explanation. The explanation on what is currently the situation, something's not right. The explanation's wrong, inadequate, it doesn't work. You know, uh, there something just seems like either it's not, and this is just the way it is, and the way it's always going to be in the story. There's that, or there's something that's like really badly off because this can't be right. Like there's there's no way to really adequately somehow come up with the idea. That suffering and pain and death and heartache and all, you know, is somehow like just part of what it means to, you know, and, and meanwhile there's, you know, God and spirit and source and, but somehow it just is all coexists together and that's, and, and this is the way it should be. There's just something about that that doesn't seem right, you know, or, you just say, that's just the way it is. All the God stuff is a bunch of BS. There is no God. 
There is no explanation for any of it. We just have what we have, and one day we're going to die, you know, and that's just the way this is. You know, but but to explain it the way it's been explained somehow that, well, you know, God is like waiting for the right time, and that, you know, God and all his knowledge figured out and all this was okay. You know, and just a lot of the explanations that religion has given, you know, seems like it just can't, something is really wrong and all about it. You know, uh, and and I it see it, when I study the life of Jesus, like in its context, Jesus did go, there's, you know, a way to understand Jesus is him going to his religious tradition and saying, okay, we, the the we have the train is off the tracks here. You know we have messed this up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what the reality of the truth that I'm speaking of. You're never going to see it, and you're keeping everybody from entering it. You know, and you can't miss that in the gospel. Jesus confronting his religious tradition from preventing the people from experiencing this thing that Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is here. You know, all the things that Jesus taught, you know, the abundant life and the kingdom of God, you'll know my truth and you're free. How does that line up with death, rape, murder, hatred, bigotry? I mean, I don't I don't know how all that fits in together. You know, did Jesus come and become a human and say, oh, it's, it's, see, it's all good because I did it. It's all good because I became a human and I'm involved in it too. So what you should take from that is that this is just the way it is and we should accept it and embrace it because I walked through it myself. And you might, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad way of looking at it, you know. Um, That is a way to see it. Do you think point of Jesus' life and everything he said is that if you walk this way sooner or later this is all going to stop like like I don't know if that's actually whatever happened or not but do you, know, do you understand what I'm saying like if we would have followed in a way of co-suffering love for self other people enemies everyone we shared and we and we lived together in a way that he told us to showed us both you think by now at least that that decreased you think that the problem with suffering is not so much that God hasn't pushed the button to get rid of it all because at that point what are we asking him to do like how's he going to do that if he gets rid of it all by coming on his car or whatever you think that it would yeah, I think maybe a way to put it and I'll just throw this out here you know again we just you know but Jesus seemed to talk about, is the kingdom of heaven some place up in the sky as a later experience after we die? Or is the kingdom of heaven a present reality that is inside every single one of us? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like it's in, that that the reality of heaven is within us. So, why do we think that we need to go up to some other place after we die where all the tears are erased and everybody's happy and there's love and everything? Like, that's not even, you know, you. some people say, well, like, there isn't even that. 
There is not a place floating around up in the sky that you're, we're eventually all going to be transported to where the reality is perfect. That whole um, scenario, dimension, reality is not a physical place located up in the sky that we go to when we die. It is a reality that exists within each of us right now from which we can give expression to and speak out into and experience and, and translate into reality. You know, uh, so that don't think of heaven as a place you go. Think of heaven as something that's inside of you right now. So if you're thinking, oh, when you go to heaven and you're going to be alive forever, and no one's going to cry, and everyone's going to be happy. Whatever you thought about the heaven that was up there, if you could switch it around and think about that that same eternal reality actually runs through all of us, it is within us, all the things that we thought were going to happen one day out there is actually a reality that exists within us right now. And then the question is, well, okay, what do we do? So now, now what? You know, um, and you know, you can think about the things that Jesus said about, you know, um, I'm going to return, you know, uh, the same way that I was. T I mean, you know, and we kind of brought this up earlier. Is that if you go back and re re look at the words of Jesus, you know, and you kind of look at, you know, whether or not how you understand what Jesus was saying. You know, think about the resurrection, that Jesus' return is not falling down out of the sky or coming down out of the sky. It's Jesus being lifted up, and that lifting up is within, from within and out of us not him coming down to the earth, you know, from the sky. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's even like Jesus' own prayer, you know, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. So even if we think yeah. all those things about heaven, the whole point still is not that. Yeah. It's that all that, whatever we put up there is supposed to, <clears throat> we're supposed to be doing what we can to make that happen here. You know? A couple years ago, I heard N.T. Wright's Maybe he's too much in the box for most of the people in this room. He talked about the kingdom of heaven, and it was the most eye-opening thing to me because it was all about how God created this world and loves this world, and all was planned for us to populate this world. And you know, everything's going to be restored according to Romans. And from my fundamentalist background, we were taught you didn't have to care about. It's all going to go up yeah. in flames. Yeah. And, that, and haste the day when it does go up in flames. Yeah, That's so what that we were, like you know. Most, and he talked about that, that the king, and they use a phrase, it's already but not yet. Yeah. That we have, but, but it, you know, like, we can begin to express it now. It's going to have a fuller expression in the future. I don't know exactly what his views are on that, on the second coming. But it was really inspiring. Yeah. Because it wasn't about heaven up there. Up there. It's about this earth right here and this life right now. I think what was so frustrating for me, though, in the environments that I was in, was I was always taught in the schooling I went to through, always emphasize that already, not yet. But it was always the not yet part. Like, yeah, we weren't allowed to join the because it was yeah. always not yet. And I'm like, what about the already? Yeah. Like, What's about the already? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. They focus more on the not yet than the already. And you can kind of follow a line through. Well, I don't know if he does, though. 
No, no, I, I wasn't yeah, saying that about Antifa. Right. That was just I was saying that phrase triggered that. What about he does not know why American Christians are so obsessed with heaven and hell? Mm. Why are you so obsessed mm-hmm. with that? Yeah. Is kind yeah. of his view. So I don't think he's about the not yet as much as he is about the you know, now. It's that externalization of everything. I mean, even thinking about yeah. Satan and so on. You know, like if you go look at, you know, consider the possibility that there isn't a Satan. There's not a person located out there who's got a bunch of other people or spirit beings that are out doing all this stuff. You know, like consider the possibility that there is, um, that there are mentalities, mindsets that hold sway that rule people from within um, that, you know, prevent us from connecting with and knowing that source that's within us, living it out, expressing it, acting out of it, you know. uh, So that, and we all know, I mean, you know, we could talk about how, you know, there's a way that when when a lot of people buy into and grab a hold of and, and put a lot of energy behind these certain mindsets and views and attitudes, I mean, they take on a very real power in our world because we're, we're, we're all operating within them, you know, and, and it, it has a real hold on people, you know. Um, so, you know, it's... It's interesting, like, when you kind of look at some of the, like, apocalyptic related things that Jesus said, you know, and so on, you mean, like, if you, you, you could, you could easily see the thought that, you know, that it's going to be the, um, the tearing down and the, the disillusionment, a word, I think, the disillusionment of these mentalities, these ideologies, these mindsets that have been ruling our world from within us, that those coming down, you know, Jesus even, you know, did somebody go bomb the, you know, like the, Jesus talked about that the temple was going to come down stone by stone. That the religious structure that we've become attached to, this thing we built in the world these mindsets, these religious and worldly mindsets and ideologies that we've attached ourselves to, it's, they're going to, uh, there won't be one stone of them not turned over and crumbled to the ground, you know, that this sort of like Satan coming down from the sky. It's not literally some guy named Satan is going to be like shot out of the sky. It's going to be these mindsets that have held sway over us that are going to um, come crumbling down and that life being you know, lifted up. And it seems like that, there, that, that Jesus might seem like he was saying that, and again, you, if you're going to read the Bible and say like things, you say, I mean, you got to come up with something, right? I mean, you can't just like <laughs> pretend it's not there, right? You know. Well, we try though. Yeah, <laughs> we try real hard. I, I I stopped trying to fit it all together. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I think what happened is that I. It's not that I started 
what I began to see is that I had never really given half of what Jesus said a fair shake. Right. Yeah. Right. Because, like, I don't think I ever might have even gotten to the truth he was even talking about. Yeah. Because well, I had been so, like, the, the mindset, the ideology and everything had, like, really impacted the way that, that I was, you know, kind of, I, I, I was looking at it. You know, but all that to say, what I was going to say is that if you look at it, it seems like that the Jesus was suggesting, well, again, let me say, it's very difficult for you to read the Gospels and not see Jesus suggesting the end of an age and the birth of a new one. I don't know how you can not get that out of what he was saying. That, but he also said the kingdom was now. I mean, it, it had come. It's right. Coming. Right. So, but what I'm saying is that it's 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 hard to whatever you come up with about it. It's hard to miss the part where Jesus describes that there's going to be um, the ending of an age, and you know, and it looks like it's going to be occurring at a time where there's, you know, there's great stress, distress, and turmoil, and out of that um, reality that uh, there is going to be this lifting up, we interpret it as a falling down out of the sky, Jesus thing. How about an awakening? Awakening, a lifting up out of us, the maybe this spirit, this truth, in a way where... There's a shift in what happens in our world or in our, you know, what's happening here. You know, um, I mean, the kingdom of God is here, right? It always has been. You know, so we, we know that. It's just that we've got to, it's, Jesus seemed to be pointing to, I mean, if it was all good, you said, well, I mean, it's all good. The kingdom of God is here. Enjoy it. You know, we'll see it at some other point. But it's, you know, Instead, Jesus came back and like gave hell to his religious tradition. You guys are blocking the way. The kingdom of God's here right now. And you're in the way. Get the hell out of the way so these people can get it. You're not even going to get in. That's how bad you screwed this up. You sit and read your Bible thinking how self-righteous you are. I'm standing right before you and you won't even listen to what I'm saying. Get your head out of your ass. I mean, that's, yeah. if you read it, that's about what. You think things are going to be on the new version of the Bible? So I think that, that, you know, I think what Jesus is suggesting is that we need to perhaps start kicking over the chairs, knocking the tables over. Not out there. We're not talking about that kind of anarchy. We're talking about in here. When are we going to start kicking over this stuff, getting rid of it, tearing it down, you know, because it's in the way. And But tempering that with, or not tempering it, but remembering that all the time Jesus was saying, look, you guys are so smart, but a child could figure this out, and you can't. And unless you become like a child, you're going to be here another 2,000 years, and someone else is going to have to come down. You know, I mean, according to the Scriptures, the Father, you know, if you take all the, you know, God comes into the world to point this out. Steve, Joe, oh. 
one of the things I, I feel is sort of broadly characterizing a lot of what you're saying, and I want to kind of revoice this to you and see if I'm, I'm on track here with what you're saying. And we were talking about this in the chat room. We, I haven't even had a chance to bring them into the yeah. discussion, really. They're listening. we got some people tuned in, but uh, we've been having some conversation about this, too. You're, you're talking a lot about the, um, the literal things that Jesus said and did, according to Scripture, and what those things mean for us spiritually. And it seems to me that we tend to get really caught up in the literal. And we kind of miss the metaphorical. And I, I feel like you're saying to us that we need to open our eyes a little bit more to the, the symbol, the metaphor of what Jesus is saying these things and what that means to our life now. Not get so hung up on the historical 2,000 years ago events that happened. Am I getting that correctly from you? Well, I mean, I'd say that there's a, you're going to have to, I guess, kind of decide, you know, um, but I, I agree in that I think that you, you know, religious reasoning is going to externalize and, you know, um, and literalize just about everything. Uh, because it can't conceive of the, of the message that would be generated from the, you know, the metaphorical part of it. It can't conceive of it because it's too much of a violation of, you know, our religious reasoning. Like we have a reasoning and, and by gosh, we, you know, we're going to use that reasoning and not allow it to, you know, we're not going to bend it for anything. And that's what's gotten us into the problems that we have now. I mean, that's kind of what's getting in the way is it, there's a kind of reasoning like Jesus said, he didn't say the kingdom of God is here only. What he said was repent for the kingdom of God is here. Well, guess what? The, the church defines repent as this idea of being sorry for your past wrongs. That's the word repent comes from a Greek word called metanoia, which means to press past the typical reasoning of the mind. You know, so, but we won't do that. We won't push past that. We will only seek to understand within the context of our mental reasoning. And, and we were not going to get it that way. And Jesus said that. You know, I mean, there's a reason why Jesus spoke in parables. And that's because he was trying to relate and connect with people on a deeper level than their, their mental reasoning. You know, it was almost like Jesus was walking up to people and he's saying, okay, I want to talk with you. I mean, I don't want to talk to you, you. I want to talk to this you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and so he spoke. And for those listening on audio, you're pointing like, to your most inner self right now, the, the you, you that's deep inside spiritually, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, you know, and Jesus said all the time, he said, for those of you who have ears to hear. Well, of course, people had ears and they could hear. That's not what Jesus said. <laughs> you want to ask me if you're hearing okay. Right, right. Mm -hmm. For those who are willing to tap into this, yeah. the source and the spirit in which I'm speaking from right now, right? Jesus said, I'm not in, I'm in the world, but not of it. How does that work? Well, I'm in the world, um, I'm living the human experience in this world. 
But what I'm saying to you right now, the, 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 the fundamental reality that I'm speaking from and that I live is not of this world. I'm in it, but not of it. But, and, and so I think that it is sort of understanding it. Now, it's not that you have to be enlightened or you have to be smart. You, have, you know, Jesus said you could get it if you're a child. A child would understand it. We're the ones who make it difficult. That's why when somebody was asking about, well, what do we do now? You know, well, what are you like? What are all the things that we need to do? It's almost like an inadequate explanation to just say, well, just listen to what your deep feelings are and start speaking to other people from that. But it's that simple. It's that simple. So all the all the education and all the all the intellectual thought, all the religion and everything we're talking about really doesn't matter, does it? Well. I wouldn't quite put it that way. You know, um, well, it can get in the way. It can, it can, Why not? Well, because well, we learn on lots of levels. To the extent, that. Yeah. To the extent where, you know, um, like I could, I could say that my religious tradition has messed up as it appears to me to be now at least move me to um, a, a place where I could later kind of figure it out. I mean, it had some role in my development, you know. I don't know, it's just something hard for me to just say that maybe a better way for me to say it is that there's a way that I own my whole journey, you know, uh, it's all sort of been part of what where I am now. You know, um, if I could change some things about it, I guess I would. You know, uh, but it seems like it contributed to where I'm at now. If nothing else, it, you know, caused me to question things that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have, you know. It's almost like you couldn't be who you are without, you know, like I, I look at my past experience in different iterations of institutional Christianity and as messed up as so much of it was, it's like I wouldn't be who I am now without that. Yeah. Know? So I don't know. It's Maybe it's just like um, you can't change where you've been. You know, you have the opportunity to use it in a worthwhile way, you know, even the stuff you wish that you could have, you know, not experienced or, you know, uh, I mean, there's ways that sometimes I think, well, I kind of wish I had sort of come to some of these realizations sooner, you know, um, and I guess feel some sense of, like, frustration that, yeah. it, but I don't know, I mean, you can't, I can't change any of it. No, I mean in terms of the past. But I think your your point though is well taken in that it's not like, you know, I think Jesus' point about being becoming like a child is that it's it's not necessary to um, sort of organize it all into the systems of religion and these hierarchies of 
you know, knowledge and all these things that we do with it, you know, that that's perhaps gotten in the way that that's often actually been a big part of the problem. Well, guys, I think we're going to wrap up Jim's. Uh, we put him on the hot seat for yeah. a long time now. Yeah. Um, and we've kept him an hour longer than I told him we would. <laughs> but how many of you guys appreciated Jim? Gave me a lot to think about. It's well, <laughs> we appreciate it. And, and we want to, you know, you're, I know we've kept you an hour longer than you want to. You're welcome to stay as long as you want to and yeah. hang out with us. Um, I just don't want to put you on the hot seat for <laughs> all afternoon. You know. Just don't throw me in the fire. Well, hey, well, we, did you notice how it was getting big? I know. The longer I was here, it was getting hot. I'm starting to think that maybe you had really offended Tom and we were getting ready to tie you up. I know. Hey, Ryan, can I jump in since you brought it up? I'm pointing this out in the chat room, and I hope I can get this out. Um, this was a beautiful metaphor for me today because I got here second this morning. Uh, Eric was already here and already had a fire going when we got here. I've watched during this whole time at, at least three different people at various times have gone and gotten wood, come in, put it on the fire, fan the flames, etc. No organization, no leadership, but that fire is burning strong. Yeah. And guys, I think that is a good metaphor for what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Because you guys saw a need and just jumped in there. Nobody said, hey, go get wood. Hey, you do this. Hey. No. Or, or just let it die out. Or just let it freeze. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and everybody kept getting closer and closer to trying to get one. Anyway, I just wanted to share that because I think that's such a beautiful that's metaphor. Cool. And I kept thinking, now you have to understand the background I came from. There's patriarchal. I kept thinking, why is there a guy getting up and doing this? <laughs> 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 when does the patriarchal part kick into your advantage? <laughs> But that's the great thing. That's the thing I've appreciated about Jim for a number of years through reading your books, through getting to know you a little bit. Um, just the fact that you're an open book. And yeah, I told Jim when he pulled in, you know, I feel like um, in being that open book that you, you put yourself out there for people, but you don't push people. And that's such a huge deal, and that's something that so many of us that have been, you know, that have moved outside of an institutional form or whatever of church, that's something that so many of us have um, have not experienced. We're, like I say, we're used to either being someone's trying to evangelize us to their point of view, or they're trying to, or, you know, like even the atheist evangelists, they're trying to pull us out of that point of view. And I feel like you just open yourself, you're there for people, and you allow people to glean as they need you where they're at. And I well, just really appreciate that. Yeah, well, I always feel like, I mean, you know, it's like there's no rock stars. We're all, it's exactly. all level playing field. Exactly. We learn from each other, you know, and that's why I never liked the idea. Yeah, so, you know, um, <coughs> like I've gained so much from the conversation. Yeah. yeah. You know, like people just expressing where they're at and how they're thinking about things and what's happening inside of them, you know. Yeah. 
Man, <laughs> but well, so it, much fun, you know. And, and honestly, I could have kept going and going and going, yes. but I wanted to respect Jim's time, so we cut. <laughs> we we finally cut it off just out of respect for him. But man, the conversation yeah. was just rich and and yep. deep, wasn't it? It was. It was. And not too long after that conversation ended, a bunch of us went out for dinner together and continued on with the conversation and fellowship. But um, yeah, right. That was just. There was, you know such a cool, casual atmosphere about that whole conversation. And, you know, this is one of the things you and I care so much about with Beyond the Box that we really value just conversation yeah. and not, you know, Jim wasn't there as an expert on anything. He wasn't there as a, he was going to tell us all what we needed to know. He was just sharing from his heart and, you know, shooting from the hip on a lot of stuff and uh, that the level of conversation that took place, the liveliness of it, the the ebb and flow of it, and then throughout all that, just watching the the care that people were showing for each other yeah. in that environment, yeah. and you know, keeping the fire gone so that people stayed warm, and um, and as the day you know, progressed, moving, we kept getting closer and closer to that fire. Yes, too. closer <laughs> and closer to the fire. It was a little bit chillier than we had hoped, and the forecast looked like it was going to be a lot better for that day, but. Uh, still ended up, certainly if the weather was cold, the fellowship was very warm. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I just, I, I want to thank Jim, especially for spending that much time with us. But again, just, you know, seeing all of us kind of on the same level and the, the playing field was, was very level for everybody. Uh, I, I don't think that anybody there felt intimidated or uh, uncomfortable. Um, certainly some of the topics were a little bit challenging and you hear some of that in the conversation that takes place, but the the overall atmosphere was just so peaceful as that conversation took place. And, you know, and, we at dinner um, that night, we were talking about the conversation. And, you know, for so many of us, we've come out of an authoritarian paradigm where we're told what to believe yeah. and whatever is yeah. pronounced from the stage is supposed to be. You know, uh, it, it's supposed to be for everyone there to apply to their right. lives. And what it was so yep. interesting at dinner that night, we were talking about the conversation. And one of the one of the juxtapositions that I really wanted to shed some light on was, look, so many of us have come from different denominational structures or different church hierarchical structures where we've right. been told to swallow whatever's been put before us. But right. the neat thing about Beyond the Box is what we're trying to do is we're trying to just leave no stone unturned, let, leave no mm-hmm. no conversation, no question off limits. And so right. in, the, in the conversation, one of the things that Jereen brought up that I thought was so good outside, it, this was uh-huh. outside of the recording, but I wanted to bring it in. One thing she said was so good was, you know, Beyond the Box, it's almost like there's like this buffet and you spread yeah. this table out for everyone and it's there for the mm-hmm. taking, but no one's force feeding you. 
And so yeah. you're welcome to take a little of this and a little of that, and you can leave that if that's not for you right now. That's very much yeah. how Jim uh, approached that whole conversation, too, that I so appreciated. He realized yes. that many of us, some of the things he was saying were going to be a real stretch for some of us, and at the end of the day, we might not agree right. with him. But he was yeah. so okay with that. And and yeah. that's one thing I've loved about Jim is his willingness just to recognize himself as a fellow traveler, a fellow journeyman, mm-hmm. and not as an expert, not as someone who needs to dictate to us what our spiritual journey looks like. Um, right. That just really meant a lot to me. And, and let me just yeah. throw a plug for Jim in here. Uh, in December, which is maybe when this podcast comes out, we're not exactly sure, but <laughs> in December, <laughs> Jim's newest book, Inner Anarchy, is coming out. And... It uh-huh. looks fascinating. Seen the cover design. Looks really, really cool. Um, cool. Love the title, Inner Anarchy. As a as a yeah. idealistic wannabe anarchist myself, the title <laughs> highly appeals to me. And I think basically yeah. that the whole idea of that book coincides so well with Beyond the Books in basically saying, you know, on the inside, we need to quit letting people rule us from the outside in. And we need to follow right. our hearts, what God's putting in our heart. Mm-hmm. So appreciated right. that about that conversation. Yep, that's definitely right up our alley, isn't it, Ray? It is. Well, thanks again to Jim for coming out. Thanks to everybody who joined us at the gathering, uh, those who tuned in live stream. Uh, we were able to broadcast Jim's uh, conversation in real time, and uh, people were able to join in the conversation that way, too. Uh, I, I can't... I just can't express enough how pleased I was with everything about the gathering, Ray. Yeah. Uh, it was such a fantastic time. As we've said elsewhere, it totally exceeded our expectations. You and I went into this really no clue as to what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, for all we knew, there were going to be you know theological fistfights taking place. Yeah, but yeah. Um, it, everybody's spirit there and, and attitude was wonderful. There was a lot of flexibility, people just going with the flow. Um, we were able to, to work through any technical difficulties that came up, scheduling difficulties, all that kind of stuff. Um, I just really appreciate everybody that made the effort to come. Those who would have made the effort if they could have, but were prohibited from doing so. A lot of them made great sacrifices to tune into the live stream. Um, and those who couldn't do either of those, I know still were very supportive and encouraging the conversations taking place on Facebook around it were just a lot of fun too. So Thank you, Beyond the Box. You guys are terrific, yeah. and uh, we love the community that's built up here. Uh, love being able to share these things with the world through podcasts. Um, we know that there's a lot more people listening than get to participate in our community, and uh, we understand that you know maybe the community isn't for everybody, but um, all of you, at whatever level you're involved or interacting with us, if uh, even if you're not interacting with us, we still appreciate you being a part of this and listening in. Yes. Um, we love bringing this stuff to you guys, and uh, we'll continue to do so as long as we can, right? In the words of Chick-fil-A, it's our pleasure. <laughs> Except we're saying it voluntarily, not because our boss not, told us we had to say under, it. We're not under compulsion in any way. <laughs> That's a whole other topic. We'll save that for a later episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Box. 
We would love to connect with you online, and we have several ways for you to add your voice to the Beyond the Box community. To become a part of our Facebook community, send a Facebook message to either Rayburn Johnson or Steve Sensenig with a request to join. This group is a safe place to talk about your journey and to think through your walk with God. While you're there, you can like our Facebook page to receive updates on new podcasts and happenings at facebook.com slash beyond the box. You can also visit our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, where you can hear all of our previous podcast discussions, submit ideas for future episodes, check out our blog, and even call us to leave your audio comment or idea. Look for the Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen where you can enter your name and phone number to have our answering machine call you, or you can call us directly at 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. However you choose to connect with us, we just hope you do. You are a welcome part of the community that is... Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box.